Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Friday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes Podcast. It is Mailbag Friday, the people's holiday upon us once again. Got a ton of mailbag questions to get to. Uh, Things are picking up full steam as we are three weeks into uh, Mailbag Friday season once college football season is over with, and uh, the people showed up this time. And given the way the week worked out, I actually have an interview for us uh, before we get to Mailbag Friday. I had my old radio cohort, Michael Borky, on to talk. National Signing Day, Jimbo, Lane Feud, a lot of different stuff. Uh, just kind of the state of two programs in, this, in Mississippi as well. Um, but a lot of the Lane Jimbo stuff that I covered solo on the uh, on the Wednesday night, Thursday show. But um, I think it was a good conversation. So we're going to get to that first, and then I'll take your Mailbag Friday questions after that. So big show, probably a fairly lengthy show. Actually, not probably. This thing's going to be long as hell, but whatever. You got the whole weekend to listen to it, so enjoy. Um, before we get to that, I wanted to remind you the podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sportsfix? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Big things on the horizon at Skybox. We've, their NASCAR package is dropping at the end of the month. If you get the NASCAR package this weekend, it will be free. And they will post the plays on Twitter and the website. There's a pre, excuse me, there's a preseason race. The, this week's NASCAR package will be free. Uh, preseason race in the Coliseum. I don't know how the hell they're doing a race inside a football stadium, but uh, apparently NASCAR has preseason races. So be sure on the checkout, check that out. All full season NASCAR subscribers will get futures for free, and futures will be on the site a little bit later this evening. Use the promo code NASCAR. You get 30% off the NASCAR package. Skybox crushes it on NASCAR. I don't know how to wager on NASCAR. I'm going to learn how to. We're going to get the NASCAR handicapper on the podcast week after next. We locked that in for an early uh, early week interview right after the Super Bowl. So looking forward to that. Capitalize on their NASCAR package. They're 30-14 and 14 in the last five days in college basketball. If you're not using their college basketball picks, I don't know what the hell you're doing. And then even more news for Skybox is their Super Bowl Props will be up here shortly, and in their words, we absolutely crushed the Super Bowl because we have all the information. So how about that? And they're giving out two freebies right here. You ready? Write this down. First kickoff, not to be a touchback, plus 135. You can probably find it closer to 200. Cam Akers, under 65 and a half rushing yards. So those are just two freebies that they're giving out uh, right there. Boom. All you had to do was press play on this podcast and you uh, get two of Skybox's free Super Bowl props. Look at their look for their full props package on the website here soon and ride with them in college basketball as they continue to crush it. Uh, if you're looking for other sports, they have a picks package that's going to fit your price range. Just go to skyboxsportspicks.com and uh, check them out season long, month long, week long, all sports, sports specific. It's going to fit your price range. Use the promo code RIPPY and get 20% off any purchase you have on Skybox's site. And don't forget the daily free plays in college hoops. You just go to skyboxsportspicks.com slash free play, and you get daily free plays in college basketball. So they're really just sharing it all with the people. You need to become a member if you're in the wagering community. Skybox is going to lead you to profit more consistently than anyone else. I can guarantee you that. And they're just printing money right now. So if you're not using Skybox and you're losing money, 
you're basically just losing it by choice because Skybox is going to lead you to profit and wreck your bookie for you. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger, soon to be a second location in Gluckstadt. There, uh, I'm not exactly sure where it is. I should probably give you, get the people some directions that's coming this spring, but go see Greg. If you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, it's rippywrights.substack.com. You get a newsletter from me three to five times a week for free. I just sent out the Friday one as we speak. And discounted meats right now for subscribers. It's a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's a hell of a way to kickstart your grilling season, your weekend, whatever the case may be. We're going to get warmer weather eventually. I'm in the middle of snowmageddon in Dallas right now. But you're going to want to start throwing stuff on the grill, and LB's is the best place in the world to make that happen. Greg wants to make your grilling experience great, whether it's the Lane Train Special, Bacon Wrap Filet, all kinds of different sausages. I love the ribeye sausage. Filet burgers are always a go-to. Go find your own favorites at LB's. University Avenue across from Kroger and check out that Rippy Ride special. Just go show him proof of subscription and he'll get you set up. Craig's the man. LB's is the best. You know the drill by this point. Go check him out. Okay, well, we're going to get to Michael Borky's interview first and then I'll do your mailbag Friday questions on the back end. So long podcast today, as I mentioned, but hell, enjoy it. Hopefully you're uh, listening to it with uh, a nice cold one in your hand or doing something you enjoy as your weekend, hopefully, is well underway by this point. Here is Super Talk, do it all, man, Michael Borky on the drama in college football this week. I will say we recorded this on a Thursday evening before the Brian Harson stuff got weird. It was almost like, look, I'm not going to call us prophetic, but we were talking about like what a disaster it was. And that was before all this hot water stuff came out. So it was slightly dated in that sense. I've been really bad on the news cycle today. I published a podcast right before the Deshaun Ruffin news. And then, uh, then right before the Brian Harson craziness late last night. So, anyway, a little dated in that sense, but uh, enjoy. Here's Michael Borky. All right, we now welcome on our resident chaos correspondent, my uh, old radio cohort, Super Talks Do It All Man, Michael Borky. It's like we have you on when shit happens. And honestly, I guess I called my shot in this one. I didn't under, I didn't know Lane Kiffin and uh, uh, Jimbo Fisher were going to get in a uh, beef over NIL when I texted you about coming on the pod, but. Things certainly worked out that way. We got a lot to cover today. What's up, man? Oh, no doubt, right? And I, I've just been spending the last two days, you know, not parenting or, or being a husband or even doing my job. I've just been on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's all I've done. I've just been on Twitter seeing some of the reaction to, to what Jimbo said. And I will give a lot of people credit, though. Largely, there was still a column in The Athletic today, for example, that was like, don't be surprised that Jimbo Fisher took offense to it because he's just as hard a worker in recruiting as he is as a coach. And I'm just, I'd roll my eyes. Just shut up, dude. Okay. All right. We're going to do that. But most people, the vast majority of people not based in Bryan College Station, Texas, didn't buy a word of what he said. Not a word. Oh. And I think that's a nice change from – Ole Miss fans remember back in 2013 where everybody pretended like it was only Ole Miss that was getting some of the players they're recruiting because, because and only because they were giving them lots and lots of money. At least the reaction now is, all right, Jimbo, you're full of it. We all know it. You're acting ridiculous. That was a kind of a nice, refreshing change we've got here. So let's start, let's start with the Kiffin side of this because it was fascinating to me. I was working uh, 
uh, during the day, obviously, uh, the whatever it happened Tuesday, I guess it was. And I saw some of the quotes, and I was like, oh, Kiffin's kind of on his bullshit again, basically, for lack of a better phrase. But I didn't really realize how calculated it was until I went and watched the press conference in its entirety. That guy, from the time he stepped in the room, knew exactly what he wanted to talk about and exactly what he was going to talk about, no matter which question was asked. And I struggled, like I was writing a newsletter that I'll put out tomorrow. I meant to put it out today, but I started like writing and I was like trying to figure out how much was too much credit to give Kiffin in terms of his like calculation and how he had this planned out. And honestly, I kind of started siding with the fact that I think he planned all of this out. Like he definitely knew that something wanted to discuss. I think them having the press conference when they did was certainly calculated, and I think he knew exactly what he was doing because in all my years working there, which I'm acting like it was a decade, it was only like five or six, we never had a press conference before signing day. And I know signing day is not what it was, and you know a lot of those guys are on vacation. I'm pretty sure um, they have two weeks off, actually. Most of the assistants, I think Kiffin's actually out in California. So I get yeah, that. He tweeted a picture from Los Angeles, whatever the beach is called there, of somebody at a house near where he was sitting with an Alabama flag today. Yeah, so. I saw that today. That honestly looked exactly like Newport Beach. I'm guessing he's in the swankier Manhattan Beach, if I just had to take a guess at it. But, like, they're off. But you, can, you can't tell me 100% of having a press conference the day before signing day was just because he wanted to get out to the West Coast today sooner. Maybe it is, but some of that had to feel calculated. The entire thing – was calculated to some degree. I'm just curious your thoughts on, like, the detail of it. How how nailed down do you think this strategy was? I think everything you just said is true. And I wonder what the motivation was. Yeah. It's calculated to some degree, of course. I'm with you. It, it could have waited a day to go to L.A. That could have waited a day. He wanted to get out in front of something. My question is, and what I've been wondering since then, is exactly what? Because the obvious answer is, well, to troll Jimbo, but why? Is it, you know, he wanted to take shots at the people that took DJ Durkin away? Is he just like, you know what, hey, this isn't right that they can do 10 times more. Because pre-NIL, the richer programs could do more than Ole Miss could always. But it wasn't to this dramatic scale. So was he just like, I want to expose the truth? Or was it, you know, I'm bored, and Jimbo seems really easy to troll. Like, what, what was the, the prime motivation behind him doing this? Because I'm with you, and I was listening to Neil and Chase, and, and I, I agree with them. This was calculated. He wanted to go first, and when you listen to him, Neil's exactly right. When you listen to him, he wanted to talk about one thing on Tuesday. One thing. And it was not bringing in this transfer at linebacker. Although – pretty good addition at linebacker he didn't want to talk about that he couldn't he couldn't care less but I'm curious to 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 find out I I wish we could get the real answer of okay why A&M why Jimbo what was the motivation for the trolling but my god did he hook a Goliath grouper in that one I think part it's a combination of all of those things and I think probably one of the bigger parts of it is is that this has kind of been the talk of college football for the last two-ish months I mean even so I'm kind of one of those guys that gets down into recruiting when I have to so like three four weeks for signing day what are they going to do what are their needs all that but Weldon as early as October on the pod was like yeah I know A&M's down this year but like are you seeing what they're doing in recruiting and he mentioned that a couple times and then the more and more you talk to people like 
that was that was kind of the scuttlebutt. It's like, you seen what they're doing with NIL? Look at how many kids they're signing. So I think that was the biggest target. And then also, Jimbo's kind of an easy target. Like, he had to read a pre- – not prepared statement, but the man was looking at notes basically to defend himself over something that's legal. Like, that's clearly not his element. That is not his comfort zone to go up there. It was almost like he was pretending to be mad. It was very uncomfortable to watch. It's very Ross Bjork-esque. And that, that's the – Everybody's talked about this in different ways by now. The thing that I keep going back to that I think is kind of getting lost on the the college football world at large when it comes to this, because all the headlines I saw today were Jimbo fires back and stuff like that. He was defending something that he did not have to defend. (laughs) That's the thing. And no, you can't offer them as inducements or whatever, but there's a gray area that you can dance around where you don't say, hey, recruit from Miami that admitted on Twitter and since deleted it, but admitted on Twitter that uh, money wasn't the only reason why you signed with Texas A&M. Uh, <laughs> oops. So it, aside from the inducement part where you can't say, Hey, recruit from Miami, you're going to get 500,000 when you show up here. All you have to do to dance around that is we have defensive linemen that got a deal this size, wink, 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 you know? And that's all you have to do to dance around it and make it legal. He's defending something that he does not have to defend. It's a mystery to me why he and with Ross Bjork's support, a guy that's been there before, that's seen what happens when a coach can't shut his mouth when people are accusing his program of something, supporting the defense of the legal. Why would you not want players and recruits to know that if they go to Texas A&M, they're going to get a pretty sick NIL deal with some oil tycoon based in San Antonio. Why is that something that you want to defend against? Why is that something you don't want out there? And on top of that, it's obviously legal. What a smart person, at least in my opinion, would have done is when I'm asked the question, you know, Lane Kiffin yesterday specifically mentioned your program and talked about the luxury tax and uh, all the, the 10 times more money that you're able to spend on NIL than they are. What, what do you say about that? Yeah. Sounds like sour grapes to me. He should probably focus on his program. I'll focus on mine. It's all you got to say. Instead, a- he, he goes the clown route, the hypocrisy route, brings Nick Saban into it for some reason, and then has the audacity to think that we are all stupid when he says NIL had nothing to do with this recruiting class. It's crazy how Ross Bort can let that go and not only let that go, but support it. It's cr- the whole thing's crazy because it's all complete nonsense. Everybody knows what he's saying is not true, except for techsags.com and their message board. It's Well, I, for one, am stunned that Ross Bjork being involved in something, the uh, PR strategy didn't go well, or really just the strategy in general. But you're exactly right in that sense. So last night I did a solo pod uh, for an hour just talking about this, and I was kind of like, why would you – I kind of had the same tune to where I was like, why would you not want to be like, yeah, we do NIL better than anyone else. You should want to come here. You bring up a good point that, you know, Texas – you have states varying laws that are – varying state laws that are, quote, unquote, governing this NIL stuff or enforcing it, whatever lens you want to look at it through. And Texas is not 
are not as restrictive as Mississippi's, but they're still in place, right? Like you can't be like, you can't admit that like, yes, we coax these kids to come here because of NIL because you can't make them promises, right? That's illegal. Like if, if someone's going to get busted for NIL, you got to be really stupid and it's to break a rule like that. But to your point, like all you have to do is like go look at what our defensive linemen got last year. Like, of course the kids would want to come here or something to that nature and like fawn it without actually technically fawning the fact that you're signed up for a gajillion dollars in NIL if you come here and dance around it, like you said. And instead he just, he, for lack of a better phrase, he tripped over his own dick. Like he handled that as terribly as you could possibly could. It's not a bad thing. It's not illegal. Kiffin didn't even necessarily accuse them of doing anything nefarious. He was just like, no. you can't do that here. Like, this, it's tough. Like, he was arguing for regulation, but, man, he put Jimbo's brain in a pretzel because he had to have known that Fisher was not going to take some sort of nuanced approach to this and handle it, quote, unquote, well. And, boy, if that was Kiffin's gamble, he cashed in because that guy handled it as terribly as possible – there's several things that I find hilarious about the entire thing. One, him blaming bro Bible and sliced bread for why this is a topic. Do you think, look, I know a guy that works at bro Bible. I think I know two actually decent site, like not necessarily something I'm going to read every day because it's just not necessarily my cup of tea, but like it's relevant enough. But do you think that this is being talked about amongst coaches and amongst everyone else because of an article that was on Bro Bible. All Bro Bible did was aggregate an Oklahoma message board post, which is actually where the sliced bread thing came from. Like, I don't think Oklahoma or Bro Bible had a, uh, you know, a freelancer they forgot about, although that tends to happen from time to time. Like, that's named sliced bread. Like, the guy, he didn't even get that part of it right. But, like, it was funny to me that he was, like, accusing Bro Bible of creating this story that's, like, you know, a distraction for his program. It's like, dude, that is not why people are talking about this. Like, this was talked about long before a Bro Bible article. And then on top of that, the it's very weird to see these coaches who I guess are kind of, like, used to touting the company line and lying, for the lack of a better phrase, now get defensive about something that's totally above board. It's like. I think they hate it because they can't control it. And one, they're so not used to it still. They're still like their defense mechanism is, no, we're not paying it. He has a soundbite on Feinbaum from a month prior talking about how NIL's always been around. It was just called yeah. evening before. Like, what, what are we doing here? And that, you hit on it. The, these guys are so accustomed to lying their asses off that they don't know how to handle this. That, that, that's what it is. Jimbo is so accustomed to lying about hard work in his staff and that being it, that when it's brought up that, hey, Texas A&M has more resources than anybody, what's your comment on that? He lies. He lies. I mean, I, I brought it up earlier, but it bears repeating. One of his own recruits, poor kid was trying to defend Texas A&M, by the way. Poor kid was trying to defend Texas A&M and implicated two programs <laughs> as he was trying to uh, protect Texas A&M. He basically—I don't remember the exact wordage, but basically it was: if my decision was only about money, I would have stayed home. So I hadn't seen. <laughs> who, where is this kid from? I have missed this. Miami. <laughs> That's an so incredible. He implicated answer. both programs. That is an incredible it, answer. Yeah. It's about money. I'd have stayed home. I would have stayed home. Which, in fairness, is probably true, right? The kid right. probably wanted to go play in the SEC. You know, 
A&M's got it kind of going on. They're recruiting. Like, it's, it's just it's really nothing different than fraternity stuff, man. When you hear, like, when a lot of people are going one way, you want to be a part of that. I remember that being the case when I went through Rush, not to use a fraternity example. It's kind of the same thing. Like, that's probably true, but that's an incredible answer that that kid um, implicated two programs at once trying to defend the school that he signed with. But it's all just so nonsensical. And, like, you need notes for a defense like that. Like, if you really wanted to go with the, you know, fuck you, Kiffin, like, what are you coming after me for? Do you need notes to do that? It's clearly he was very uncomfortable. You know why he needed notes? Because he was being inauthentic. Yes. Did Lane Kiffin have notes when he was doing his thing the day prior? Right, because all good rants kind of come from the heart, not to sound like Pollyanna or wax poetic or whatever, but, like, when a dude's pissed about something, he's not looking down at prepared notes. Like, that to me is what made it seem so fake and, like you said, inauthentic, which made the entire situation hilarious. Like, do you need your reading glasses to put to look at your notes when basically you're just defending the integrity of your program about something that's completely legal? Like, the entire thing was just ridiculous, and, like, and, and that's then, the thing. You use the word integrity. Nobody has questioned yeah, their integrity. <laughs> that, that, that's the thing. All the character. He said, I'll put my character up against anyone. It's like, dude, this is not cheating. And no. to be honest, even if it was cheating, I get that you would it'd be a different conversation. But it, the, giving money to poor kids to come play football there is obviously not a like, character question either. Like the entire thing is just completely nonsensical. No, of course. Uh, but But here we are now. And I mean, just on the surface, too, what cracks me up is, first of all, something I wanted to bring up earlier. There was a uh, a Clemson reporter that was on a radio show in South Carolina, and I'm from there, so I keep up with it, that said he went to one of the All-Star games. I think it was the Under Armour one. And every single player that was interviewed, but one that he remembered, he remembered one specifically because he stood out, mentioned that NIL was part of their decision. He said every player there mentioned NIL as a factor. Not the factor, not I'm going to the place that's paying me the most money, although we know that sometimes that is just simply the case, but it's a factor in their decision. While I'm in school, can you get me money? That's a factor. And so when the kids are openly talking about it, when state law in Texas says you can do this and it's cool, it's crazy that he can sit back and defend this. And Jimbo aside, because as you've probably learned by now, most football coaches aren't very smart people. Some of them are. But generally, they're not geniuses. Either am I. So I I fall into the category as well. But if you told me, give me a category of people that's really smart. When do you get into football coach? Yeah, I mean, these dudes are are gym majors, basically. Yeah, he's a glorified PE teacher with a $9 million undeserved salary. So I I get that he didn't handle this quite well, that he doesn't really know what to do because he's just a football coach. It's all he is. But to have Ross Bjork, a university administrator, what was his title at Ole Miss? It wasn't just athletic director. It was like – Vice Chancellor for Collegiate Athletics. I can't tell me how many times I had to write that shit and look it up. Vice Chancellor for Collegiate Athletics twice now has let his football coach do that. You know who doesn't, who hasn't said anything like this publicly anywhere? Kirby Smart. You know why? Because he knows how the sausage is made. 
And he knows if you don't acknowledge any of this crap, nobody cares. Has Kirby Smart ever addressed a rumor that a really good linebacker from Mississippi got a whole lot of money to leave Mississippi to go to his program? Everybody knows that's what happened. But has Kirby Smart ever made reference to it before? Ever? No. No. Why not? Because he knows all that does is bring negative attention. Ross Bjork saw it with you, Freeze, and still is, is sitting here like leadership every day. That's what we're building championships. No, Ross, you should be going down to Jimbo's office and saying, hey, dude, cut it. Just, just stop. Don't talk about it. Just, yeah, we're proud of our guys. We worked really hard in recruiting, and we've got a good system in place, and our leadership here is really committed, and whatever you got to say that's PR 101 where you say nothing with a bunch of words, and that's all you do. And Bjork is seeing over the second instant or instance where his coach said too much. Okay. How has he not learned by now? Okay, here's a he, – to, to add on top of that, I'm glad you went there. Are we sure this wasn't his idea? Because Jimbo Fisher, like you mentioned, was clearly outside of his element. I mean, the poor guy's having to read notes on the basically just generic rant of all time of telling another coach in his industry to piss off. That's not hard to do. Like, you don't need notes for that. So he's clearly outside of his element. Are we sure this wasn't Ross's idea? Because the other aspect of this, I was talking to Chase about this on the phone last night. That question was absolutely a plan. Of like God worded it, how big of a slap in the face is it that? And didn't even finish the question before Jimbo went right after it. In fairness, I have not gone back and looked up the um, the entire press conference. Like, I don't know if that was the first question. But if it is, that removes all doubt for me. Like, my God. But I think it was a plan. But if Jimbo Fisher's this outside of his element and looked that uncomfortable, I mean, the entire exchange, like the entire rant was uncomfortable because you could – one, it was inauthentic, like you said – but, like, he didn't look natural doing it. And so if that's the case, are we sure this wasn't Ross's idea? Because Jimbo Fisher on the surface, he mentioned he's not on social media. He doesn't have social media. Look, I'm not saying he's completely locked in and his head's in the sand to the point where he would never hear about this. But are you sure he wanted to address it? I'm not ruling out the possibility. I'm not saying that it was 100% Ross's idea. But, man, given the history of those two, doesn't it seem like it might be Ross's idea? Like, if someone was going to address something that was completely unnecessary and completely stupid, who would you put your money on, Ross Bjork or Jimbo Fisher? I'd probably go with Ross. And well, especially since Jimbo's been there, man. You don't win a national championship at Florida State without knowing, you know? Exactly. And uh, something you brought up earlier, he did go on Feinbaum three weeks ago and say, guys, we're getting NIL exactly. deals all along. Exactly. And no one talked huh. about it. Like, he his memory's not that short. He he's not kind no. of sociopathic like Hugh Freeze. Like he clearly he's not like not assuming everyone else is stupid and just forgot that whether they watch Feinbaum or not. That's what makes me think it was Ross's idea because clearly someone got together. They got together because of someone, one of them two or someone else, and was like, "We need to address this." And it's like, actually, no, you don't. Like you don't have to address this at all. Like let, yeah, and they were prepared for that too. Like they had social media ready for those comments because they clipped it right away and had the fire emoji or the smoke nose emojis and Ross Bjork had had a little statement or whatever. Boom, 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 ready. They were ready for that. Exactly. They knew it was coming. And it was a concerted strategy, which is another good point to add off of that too, is like, I was about to sit here and offer defense of Ross Bjork. Like I was like, how can I possibly offer the defense for like kind of the indefensible in terms of how that was handled on his end? And my defense would have been one, 
his fan base clearly feeds into it. Look, people make the jokes about A&M being a cult. I've done my fair share of it. I've asked if, you know, David Miscavige was going to fire Ross Bjork after the A&M loss, like, or Ole Miss beating A&M. But at the same time, it's a very tight-knit kind of cultish community. It's an ag school. Like, they kind of – I don't want to say care about it more, but they're all for the brand type thing. Think oh, dude, they care about it more. They, they care about it more. I was at an Ole Miss Texas A&M baseball game sitting in left field, and there was a group of A&M fans sitting behind us. And for six innings of baseball, they talked about one of their friends that came with them, but he got too drunk the night before and, quote, embarrassed the ring – and they wouldn't let him come to the game with them. They told him to sit somewhere else. For six innings, they talked about that, that he embarrassed the ring last night. Six innings I had to hear about this right behind me. This was like five years ago. And at Ole Miss, that's main character energy. And if you add a short stint in the drunk tank of overnight, you become the legend who made it yeah. to the game the next day. It's like when you get to the game, everybody's like, yeah. yeah. This guy made it out. He's still got Sharpie on his face. Look, someone put a penis on his forehead and cat-faced him. He went to jail. Ha, ha, ha. Like, it's just different worlds. But you're putting it back on the rails to some degree. Like, his fan base plays into it. And, like, he gets the brownie points for backing his coach. But – it shows a lack of self-awareness that Ross Bjork has more of a history of than Jimbo Fisher. I thought Jimbo Fisher, I've thought a lot of things about him. He talks too fast. He says weird shit. Like, he pronounces stuff weird. He, he said league, like the word leg. Like, I thought he was talking about an appendage. Did you notice that? Like, he's like, yeah. coach is in our leg. And I was like, what did you say? Like, there's other syllables in that, pal. But, <laughs> like, to me, I, did, I have a hard time believing that Jimbo is like, all right, we got to come up with a strategy to address this. I doubt he cares. Like, I can't, in my opinion, like, he's probably, he probably wasn't thrilled that Lane Giffen called him out by name, right? But, like, I don't think Jimbo's the guy to go into a press conference and be like, all right, like, we need to fight back. Like, I, just, like, I don't think he cares. Why? He got all the players. Like, he, he got to signing the best class in the country. He has a bigger advantage than everyone else that's legal. Why would he care? Which makes me think, again, this wasn't his doing. This, to me, reeks of Ross Bjork because, to put it simply put, because of the cringeworthy nature of it all. I mean, that's yeah. wrestling belt that. Absolutely. And what's so funny about all this is at the end of the day, regardless of what Lane Kiffin's motivations were, all he did was tell the truth. That's all he yes. did. It, it, was it out of frustration? Was it out of trolling? Whatever. Sour grapes? Doesn't matter. He told the truth. Yeah, there are other programs, a, a very small handful of them, it appears, that can do things and are doing things in NIL that Ole Miss cannot do. And Ole Miss has its shit together far more than its in-state counterpart in the NIL game. Ole Miss is actually in position to start doing some pretty good things in the NIL deal. They deserve credit for that. The, the, for, to your, add on to your point, for the Grove Collective, the William Liston thing, to anything else, Ole Miss has been far more on top and forward-thinking in NIL than I thought they would be, and they deserve huge credit for that. But at the end of the day, their pockets, just given the yes. state and everything else, are just simply not as deep. But continue. The, the, the people aren't there. The money's not there. But Ole Miss is ahead of Mississippi State right now. If you're a state fan listening, I know Neil and Chase have referenced that on this feed there are some. Um, it's that's the truth. Ole Miss is ahead of state right now in NIL. Ole Miss is ahead of a lot of programs in the SEC in NIL. They are. Um, and they're doing it the right way, which is why it's taking longer, crossing T's, dotting I's, all that stuff. But exactly. He was just telling the truth. 
A&M is able to do things because of who they have that backs them that Ole Miss cannot do. And it's a staggering difference between the two. Now, luckily, Texas A&M can still only sign 25 guys a year, so the player distribution isn't really going to change all that much. But Texas A&M in the pre-NIL era didn't sign seven five-stars, and now they signed seven this year. And not everybody's from Texas either. The greatest recruiting class in the history of the sport does not belong to Nick Saban at Alabama. It doesn't belong to Urban Meyer at Ohio State or Kirby Smart at Georgia or Dabo Sweeney at Clemson. It belongs to Jimbo Fisher off of an 8-4 and four season at Texas A&M. They are able to do things that other schools cannot. And you know what? That's the game now. They're just playing it. Nobody worth a shit or, or whose opinion matters or, or anything has said anything other than they're able to do it more. Not they're cheating. That's wrong. It's just they have more. When you built a $500 million stadium in a year, you told everybody you have more. So why is it insulting now? Not a single person of relevancy has accused Texas A&M of nefarious actions. Nobody. Kiffin didn't. He just said they've got more. A lot more. Ten times more. Exactly. What did he call for yesterday? A salary cap. He kept asking for what would it be like in the NFL if one team's payroll, I think he said salary cap. I should have said payroll. It doesn't matter. It was 10 times greater than the other one. It's like, well, Kevin, you'd have Major League Baseball. Like, have you seen the American League East, the Tampa Bay Rays versus the Boston Red Sox and New York Yankees? But, of course, that's like another brilliant thing about the Kiffin part of it is all this was kind of intertwined with the legitimate gripe. I think I think Kiffin realizes, one, the he plays the news cycle and kind of media as a tool better than any other head coach, which we talk about the smarts of head coaches. That's a real advantage that he has because most other coaches don't get it. Like they're a football guy through and through. I don't have social media newspapers or for wussies, that type of mentality. Kiffin understands the news cycle and media better than most and knows how to use it as a tool. But also I think it's a legitimate gripe because he's gotten on big picture topics before and he actually gives his best answers when you ask him about big picture stuff. It reminds me of Bill Belichick. He's known as this like curmudgeon guy that doesn't give answers in press conferences. Well, if you ask Bill Belichick, if you ever noticed, if you ask Bill Belichick like, hey, who does this guy compare to? Like Lawrence Taylor or something like that? He gives like a really good thoughtful answer because he likes stuff like that. Kiffin's that way with big picture stuff in college football. So he's gotten on big picture stuff before. So I think it was a legitimate gripe. And to bring it back to what you're talking about, he was calling for a salary cap because I don't think there was any old, you know, he did the thing with crowd sizes and all that. I don't think there was any part of yesterday with Kiffin that was antagonizing Ole Miss bagmen or Ole Miss donors or Ole Miss boosters or in general to get with it because they have gotten with it to the point we bring up about NIL. Ole Miss is on top of it on the NIL front to a degree that was actually surprising to me, just given the history of the way the school operates. I was actually shocked that they were on top of it. They just simply don't have a deepest pockets. But you know what's weird about this? And Neil made the point, I think, on their podcast today. I was listening to it this morning. You know who else does it? Alabama. You just don't have wealth like that. I mean, me moving, not to use a very like personal example, me moving out here to Texas and Dallas, there's a whole other level of money in this country and that people have that you simply just don't see in Mississippi. And like, not that I'm hanging out with a ton of rich folks, but I mean, my God, SMU is right down the street from me. Like, there's just a level of money out here 
that like you don't have in states like Mississippi and Alabama included. And so that's where I think the legitimate part of his gripe is, is look, I don't think they're ever going to be able to salary cap NIL because at the end of the day, it comes down how, like how are rich people spending their money? But I think that was a legitimate concern of his because it's like, how the hell is this fair? They're getting to pay, you know, a million and a half a kid or whatever it is when you do the money. And like, we simply can't do that here at Ole Miss. And it was almost like part of it was like, welcome to being a have not Kiffin. Yeah. And he, he's smart enough to your point. I, I don't think he was griping about Ole Miss fans either. Cause he's not smart. He's been around the state. He sees what the state has to offer. And it's a very rural state, a very small populous state. It, there's not a lot. It, it's just, it's a different world. I, I mean, for every multi-million dollar Ole Miss alum that exists, there's 20 more in Dallas. It, it, it's just, that's how it is. It's the reality of the situation. Same thing in Georgia. I mean, there, there's just more people in Georgia. It's a rural state, but there's more people there. The school's bigger. They, they put out more alums. More of them get richer. More of them have money to get involved in stuff like this. It's just the nature of the beast. If they were to try to cap NIL, how should they do it? I don't know how that works. Like, See, my, my idea, and, I, you know, at the end of the day, people are always going to cheat. As long if you put a cap out there, you know, it's not the NFL, right, where the cap is $200 million. Like, everybody gets to eat there, and they get endorsements on the side, no big deal. But in college sports, if you put a cap, people are going to break the cap. But I, I wonder if with the presence of these collectives that they can't say you can have a collective, a university-affiliated fund that the school doesn't operate. So it, this is the Ole Miss collective or fund, but the school doesn't operate it. It's independent people, and they can have up to this amount of money in that fund to distribute to the athletes every year. And that – since it's a, a public thing, like the NIL groups that are doing it right, it's all public, then you know, based on taxation or whatever, and the, I, I, the problem is the NCAA can't enforce this. They're too incompetent. But that would be, I guess, off the top of my head, the only way you can regulate it, right, is have a fund where you can have up to $20 million a year that is distributed evenly to your athletes. And you can replenish that fund every year, but you cannot go over this amount and your tax filings will prove that to us or whatever. Or you'll get something like that because otherwise, unless somebody's got a better idea, what can you do? That's what leads me to believe that it's never getting capped from a financial perspective. Now, there's ways to regulate the transfer portal and other aspects of it. But in terms of how much money can a school spend, or I say a school spend, a collective you know, a program, fans of the program, boosters, whatever, how much they can they can spend. I don't think it's ever getting capped because you hit on it. Like, the NCAA is too incompetent to enforce it. And as we've talked about a couple of times when you've been on, like, I've, I've made this point too many times, but, like, no one's ever going to feel sympathy for Mark Emmert, but I did empathize with him a little bit this summer where he's getting roasted by Congress and he's begging them to enact some sort of national – legislation to regulate this stuff otherwise it's going to become a shit show and it became a shit show but the people he was asked they're turning to to ask to regulate it so the ncaa and mark Emmer are basically begging uh the federal government to regulate it guess what the federal government is not going to get in the business of doing 
telling student athletes how much money they can make. Did you see the anti-NCA arguments from senators that probably don't know a ton about football? It's oh, like these yeah. guys should be employees. These guys should have unions and stuff like that. You think the people that have that sort of stance are going to start getting in the business of actually these kids can only make this amount of money. Hell no, that's not happening, right. which leads yeah. me to believe it's never getting capped from a financial perspective, which benefits places like Texas A&M more so than anyone else. To me, off the top of my head, from a pure financial standpoint, this would benefit Texas, Texas A&M, USC, and UCLA. I don't really know much about UCLA and USC's donor base, but just given where they're located in the country and all of that, it should benefit them a ton. And I can't even think of who else, but like schools in Ohio, like, like Ohio State yes, will do really exactly. well because they Columbia. own the entire state and there's three big cities in the entire state. And they're in one of them. Like Columbus yeah. is a real city. Like it has an NHL and a soccer franchise. That's a big ass place. Like I think yeah. it's pretty underrated how big it is. I think it benefits places like that. Whereas it actually kind of works to the detriment a little bit of like an Alabama or an Auburn or a Tennessee or something like that to a much smaller extent, Georgia. Don't worry. I'm not sympathizing with them. They will be fine. But you talk about the above board part of this, that benefits places like Texas A&M and Texas more so than pretty much anyone else, which made yesterday's you know commentary even more shocking, but kind of reeling it back in. I, just, I, I don't see how it's ever capped from a financial standpoint. You can regulate it in terms of like what's allowed and what's not, but in terms of how much money can be pumped into this, to me, there's just no realistic way to ever cap that. And they'll find their way around it like they always have. Um, but it, to, to add, you said that earlier, I, I agree, but when it wasn't legal, Texas A&M wasn't signing these kids. So there's something right. about it being above board that has changed that has helped things for them. If only the NCAA would actually, you know, be able to do their jobs and, and come in when you see a player tweet, money wasn't the only factor in my decision, then they go do something about that. Because clearly that player was promised money to go to that school, but they won't do anything about it. My God, Will Wade is still badly coaching at LSU. Uh, so, and no I one mean, wants them to. No one wants to see that. No, because they'll just do a bad job. It's a mess. I mean, other ways that you could, I, I guess, create some level of balance would, would be taking opportunities away from kids. That's the problem is the, the second you say they should reduce roster size, well, you're taking 10 scholarships away from kids that wouldn't get it otherwise. Now, the trickle down, it would affect like one, well, FCS Division Two and stuff because the 10 players that are cut off of every roster would go down to the FCS and then their bottom 10 would go down to Division Two and it would go that way. I mean, the, the guys that, would go to Texas A&M that get cut, if you will, uh, from the 85 scholarship limit would get to go play somewhere else. It's the fringe guys at the lower divisions that would get screwed if you would do something like that. But still, that takes scholarships away, college away from kids, but that would create balance. So you can sign fewer guys. You can sign 75 instead of 85. That's your limit. And so – those 10 players that would have gone to Alabama have to go to an Ole Miss now or a Mississippi State now, that would create balance. But you, you're not going to win that argument because you're taking opportunities away from kids. And we can't have that. So there, there's no good answer for how can you balance the sport because money's always driven success. And it's still more openly driving success. And there's, a, there's so much that goes into this, too, because there's a correction coming. We've talked about this a couple of times, is, like, Quinn Ewers, kid skips his senior year out here at South Lake Carroll, goes to Ohio State, 
signs whatever NIDL deal that is, rakes in the cash, transfers back out, and is now back at Texas. Do you think whomever gave him that NIL deal at Ohio State is like, shit, I'm glad we did that. That was awesome. I got a great return on investment. Like, all these kids, it's just the math of the – it's just the math of college football and the math of recruiting. All these kids at A&M, I don't doubt they're going to be talented. I'm not arguing against – I'm not doing the whole, well, A&M will still be 8-4 and four thing. I actually believe the opposite. I think that's actually about to become a real force. But There's a chance, kids, though, that they're not, like, high-level good this year, and it's well, going to be really funny. Which is going to be hilarious. Like, yeah. You're right. But, that's going to be really funny, and then in two years, they're going to win 11 games and jokes on us. If you like, so there's there's so many ways you could go off in this because again, you're not allowed to quote unquote promise kids nil stuff, but clearly this is happening. Well, what is the is that like? I know it's you have to like the nil stuff is above board, but like, what's the promise made versus what actually the kid gets, particularly if he doesn't pan out? Like, I think some kids are going to get burned in some stuff on this, and then even if they aren't, some booster is going to be like, I paid how much money for this kid? And he hasn't seen a, you know, he hadn't played a down a meaningful football in two years, and he's about to transfer someone else. No thanks, I'll sit this one out. Maybe people are just crazy enough that they'll continue to pour in money, but I find that hard to believe because you know Alabama's always had kind of Alabama boosters, and then it took some organization from Nick Saban to beg, look, we're about to do shit my way, and then they signed you know ridiculous recruiting classes on top of ridiculous recruiting classes. So like, I guess what I'm saying is one, there's going to be some sort of correction with the money because there's no actual market value for any of these kids' services. And on top of that, like, it's never just been about the money. There's places like A&M and like Texas that have tons of money to give kids illegal or legally that have still been incompetent. And so I'm curious to see what that looks like. Like, they sign this class, and they'll probably be good, and they'll probably make a playoff here in the next four to five years. But I'm still hesitant to say this is going to shift the balance of power in college football and Texas A&M is the next blue blood for two decades just because history kind of says that's not actually the case, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, I think it's Andy Staples that says regularly, uh, 17-year-olds are bad investments. Yes. <laughs> they're, they're really bad investments. I mean, Texas A&M signed seven five-stars. Uh, there's a, a greater than – there's a great chance that only three of them are really good impact players. Only half of five-stars get drafted. Now, that's the highest number in all recruits, but that's half. Half of them pan out. So even if – you got this guy that paid, got his company, car dealership, whatever. We made this exact argument with viewers, but I think it, it bears repeating. If you've got a, a rich alum who's worth a few million dollars, whatever the case may be, and he paid 250K to get that defensive tackle from Florida, and that defensive tackle from Florida comes in and can't shed weight, can't get in the rotation, maybe hurts his knee, then they recruit over him. And he never plays. And then he hits the transfer portal and goes to UAB. You going to get that guy to give you money again like that? Maybe. But to the degree that you're currently getting, maybe not. So maybe that correction is coming. Because I know if I had the money and I was a bag man and doing this thing, and I, you kept coming back to me saying, no, kid needs more, kid needs more, kid needs more. Okay, here's $200,000, sign this receiver, and he doesn't play. I'm not doing that again. Next time, I'll give money to the kid that's actually performing. Yep, and to, I would like to have it on record. If I was ever got that rich, the last thing I would do was give money to 18-year-old kids. 
Um, I would be giving, <laughs> the only thing, the only 18 year old kid or teenager that would see money from me is the kid that opens the door for my limo when I'm getting escorted to my box. I'd probably slip him a hundred and tell him to get a decent haircut. I'm definitely not pouring thousands of dollars into high school football prospects coming to play at my school. Just not my cup of tea. Maybe if I had that kind of money, my thinking would change, but like, that's just never what I'm going to do. But you're exactly right. And that point is like, at what point do boosters be like, because those guys didn't get rich by making stupid investments. And it, with the amount of kids, you know, if it's a 50-50 shot, but you're having to give X amount of money 100% of the time, at what point do guys kind of look around and be like, well, my money's kind of going to shit. Like, I'm curious of that aspect of it. Like, how much does the NIL funds fluctuate on the competency of your program? Because I think Jimbo Fisher is a good football coach. There's some stuff he does offensively that I think is outdated in particular. But, like, if Texas A&M had Kevin Sumlin, like the, if, if Jimbo goes the Kevin Sumlin route at the end, I don't think that's going to happen, but like it got really sour at the end and it's like, what the hell is actually going on here in terms of this on-field product? Does the money dry up or does it like, how much of it is there through thick or thin? That's another aspect of this. And we could debate this for days. No one knows, but I'm just curious about how that plays into it. Like everyone loves to make fun of the eight and four thing with A&M last year. Look, they went 10 and one the year prior. And in a normal year, probably is good enough to make the playoffs. So they were right there on the doorstep. They, they should have made the playoff. They would have gotten smoked. They would have represented better than Notre Dame. A hundred percent. And so, like, they were right there on the doorstep. I love – no people love making the joke A&M's never actually done anything. I'm with you. Their trophy case is empty. But, like, they were right there, and that generates excitement. Think about Oxford in 2014 versus Oxford in 2019, per se, in terms of buy-in and investment. I'm curious how that fluctuates as it pertains to NIL because – if they go seven and five next year with all that talent because they don't have a quarterback or something, I just wonder if those rich dudes are going to continue to be like, yeah, hell yeah, let's put all this money in there. Yeah, for sure. And then something that I assume we're going to talk about, what happens if the kid transfers out? <laughs> what happens when he leaves? Because, they, I mean, what you're seeing now in the transfer portal, um, kids just aren't waiting anymore. Some of them are, and, and, you know, that's not exactly a fair statement because if you sign 25 guys and seven leave to the transfer portal, you think, wait, what the hell's happening? But that means 18 of the players you signed are still there. Uh, but even still, you've got guys that are one and done at particular schools, highly recruited guys. They come in, and if you can believe it, schools are signing wide receivers every year and you come in as a freshman and there's a couple sophomores and a couple juniors and a senior in front of you and you don't play much and then you bolt. And like the and go to schools like Ole Miss, they're transferring within the conference. Like it's not like they're go all going down a level. I mean, yeah. the reverse of that is what but um I was about to say Bo Nix, he went to Oregon. Who did Texas A&M get the transfer? I I'm, I'm Max Johnson. Yes, exactly. He came from LSU, another program that should be just kind of shit rich with money, whether it comes from a hospital or not. Like, I, I, they're going within confidence. And so that's a great transition to the other part of this I wanted to get to. Kiffin did not take yesterday to celebrate, or Tuesday to celebrate the number one ranked transfer portal class. And look, this is the first real year of this. What does the number one ranked transfer portal class actually mean? I guess we'll see, you know, here in the next six to nine months, but he didn't take the opportunity to kind of gloat about that. He was full on hell bent on putting Jimbo Fisher's brain in a pretzel. But with that being the case, he did offer a couple of interesting comments about the whole transfer portal thing. He said he had some quote to the effect of 
you know, we don't have a ton of evidence of this is whether this is the right play or not, but we're trying to be cutting edge. And I actually thought that was really telling because one, anything you read reporting kind of rumorish stuff, this is here to stay. I don't know if they'll all, like, honestly, they ended up with more high school kids than I thought in November and talking to people. I thought there was a chance they might have 12 high school kids and 17 transfer portal kids ended up being roughly the opposite, right? I think they're like 11 or 12 portal guys will probably end up at like 14, but 18 high school kids or 17 high school kids, whatever the number is. Point being, this strategy is not changing. And him saying we're trying to be on the cutting edge, clearly part of him is looking at this and thinking, hmm, we're not getting these kids like A&M is. Like we just don't have the money. We weren't getting them pre-NIL. Now we're getting a more known commodity in the portal. And I'm just curious, like, that's certainly a concerted strategy, but is that the long play in all of this? Get these kids at their second stop because, what do you say, 50-50 get drafted? How many of them transfer? I'd love to know those percentages. Like, this could potentially be smart. I think it's hard to build real depth in the portal, but, like, you, Ole Miss could still end up with these kids just one school removed. They got a five-star in Zach Evans. Were they ever going to get Zach Evans out of high school? Kiffin would tell you, actually said that one day in an off-the-record meeting, that they felt like they had a chance with him at the end. But that's because his recruitment had turned into a shit show. I am just curious, like, can Ole Miss be the school that gets these kids once removed and has this talent, maybe doesn't have the depth, but you catch a year where you're perfectly healthy and, you know, you compete with pretty much anyone because you're getting blue-chip talent that you weren't going to get in high school in their second situation. Yes, with multiple years left. That's why I keep pushing back on people. that I hear two things so often with the transfer portal, in this strategy in particular from Kiffin. The first is, well, this is going to disrupt the locker room. Bringing in Jackson Dart's going to cause locker room problems. Bringing in these guys to come in and start is going to cause locker room problems. My response is always, college football programs have been trying to sign better players than the ones they currently have since forever. So they teams are, have always been adding new, hopefully better players to their roster. And – why is it different now? Because the guy is 20 instead of 18? And number two, well, this, this really is going to set your program back because you're not building up high school players. Maybe not. But Jared Ivey, for example, what would you rather have? What would you rather sign? The four-star out of high school who's 6'6", 215, playing defensive end? Or the guy that's been in a Division I system in the ACC for two years, gained 70 pounds, and now is locked into your program for three years? Which one would you rather have? Which one is more risky because of the, pre the, the prevalence of the portal? I'm not convinced that this strategy is the risky one. I think building on high school players at this point is the more risky one because your guys, if they don't play right away, are just going to go somewhere else. They're not locked to you at all. A, a Arch Man, just Arch Manning. Arch Manning is not locked into the school he signs. He's not locked in. He can sign with Georgia and then go to Ole Miss the next year. You can put all of your time and resources and money and effort into recruiting a kid and you get him and he's gone in a year. But Jared Ivey can't go anywhere unless he wants to sit out for a year and he doesn't want to do that. But now you get this guy with three years of eligibility left who has already done the body transformation needed to play at this level. So when you talk about risk and when you talk about, well, it's going to – what happens when you, you sign players with just one year of eligibility? And, yeah, like Chance Campbell, for example. You, you do sign some of those guys. But Jared Ivey's got three years left. 
Jackson Dart has to be at Ole Miss for two years. Has to be. He can be the best college football player in the country this season, and he has to come back to Ole Miss. He has to. And will so, realistically be there for three. That's what it feels like. Michael Trigg has to be at Ole Miss now. He is an elite athlete at tight end. A guy that you weren't signing out of high school. You signed a four-star in last class, but a lot of that had to do with the fact that, God bless the, the young man, has, has dealt with some injuries. This dynamic athlete in Michael Trigg is locked into your program for at the bare minimum two years. At the bare minimum. But Michael Trigg wasn't locked into Southern Cal at all. You make a coaching change and he's gone. What would you rather have? Michael Trigg as a freshman or Michael Trigg as a sophomore, junior, and senior? I, I, I don't – and we have no precedent to tell if I'm right or, or the dissenters are right in this. We have no precedent. But every time I think about this, I think I'd rather have Jared Ivey now because he's stuck with me and he's already in playing shape. He's already gone from 6'6", 215 to 6'6", 275. So I don't have to do any legwork. Nick Savage just has to refine. He doesn't have to build. Kid's ready to go. I don't have to waste this scholarship for two years while he's gaining weight. He's here. And I've got him for years. Which one is more risky? I think this, what Lane Kiffin's doing now, is the great equalizer that can help balance out what Texas A&M's doing. I think this is what will cause the balance. They have to get in the NIL game, of course. But this is more important for Ole Miss's success than recruiting high school kids against Alabama and Texas A&M. This is what's going to help level that field to some small degree. But it, it's here. It's not high school recruiting. It's portal recruiting, which is going to level the playing field for them. Jackson Dart is still 18 years old. That kid turns 19 I mean, in May. Like, does, how does that not necessarily, like, again, so Weldon, always, Weldon pointed out a couple of times on the pod, like, it's pretty unprecedented they didn't sign a high school quarterback. And I'm not pushing back on that point at all. I think it is. I mean, you look around, everyone that adds at least one quarterback for a class, they still need another quarterback, whether that adds, ends up being Jack Abraham or whatever. You just need another body in that room. So, you know, that point aside, like, this is not a pushback to that. Why is he not a pseudo high school kid? He's still 18. He can't drink. He can buy tobacco barely. But, like, the kid turns 19 in May. And that's a rare-ish case because he's a younger kid. But, like like you mentioned, he has to be there for two years. He's probably realistically going to be there for three. That's no different than signing Matt Corral out of high school. It's not much different, at least. It's not the exact same thing. And that's the interesting part about this portal stuff because, you know, I wrote about it earlier this week and made a point a second ago. It's, like, it's probably hard to build – real depth from the portal. But the thing I hadn't considered when making that point was actually these kids are stuck here. Like I think I wrote on Tuesday or whenever it was like transfer portal kids don't come to be second stringers. Like they're coming to play, but there is a little bit of variety in that because if they get there and they don't play, they can't necessarily go anywhere else immediately. Not necessarily. They just can't like they are kind of stuck with you in that sense. I still think there's a balance there, right? You got to recruit high school kids to have any sort of semblance of depth, but it's kind of what Kiffin's not. But they can go any time, though. I mean, so right. I'm, just, I'm just throwing this name out there. I have no idea whether or not he's going to be at Ole Miss forever or, or leave tomorrow. But Jaron Willis, you sign yeah. a four-star linebacker uh, out of Georgia. What happens if he doesn't play very much this year? And Georgia Tech behind the scenes is like, hey, dude, you're going to start for us next year. Next year, come on. And he hits the portal and he's gone. So what are you building with this guy? 
players, you can't count on them being around for three years before they play anymore. You can't count on that. You still try to do it, but you can't count on it. It's like the NFL free agency on steroids, as Kiffin keeps alluding to. Like, you know, football, the greatest, like, advantage that the have schools versus the have not schools have is depth. Like, think about what Alabama dealt with injury-wise this year and still ended up in the national title game. Ole Miss couldn't deal with that and have a remotely as good of a season as they did. Like if they I mean, had look at what happened when two wide receivers got hurt. Exactly. Like the offense looked unrecognizable. So what does that mean for like the future of college football from like a depth standpoint? Because like depth is always was what has separated, you know, that the good programs from the bad ones. Like Alabama. I mean, Mac Jones was a third stringer. The guy was a four star and is starting for the New England Patriots as a rookie when they played in Oxford in 2018. You could have mistaken him for a cowboy. It's like, oh, like, who does this guy's granddad know? He kid's a four-star, and he's their third quarterback. And that was yeah. the advantage they have and are going to continue to have. But this portal thing makes me wonder about, like, depth. Like, how does that work? How do you build real depth? How do you convince a kid, whether it's a high school kid, unless he's a true freshman and is just stuck there, like, how do you convince a kid to be a second stringer for you? That's what I'm fascinated with this five because I'm trying to think of a good example for Ole Miss. Austin Keys. it sucks that he got hurt. But that kid wasn't playing at the beginning of the year. And then towards the year went on, he started getting more and more opportunities because he was playing better. Ashanti Sistrunk is another example. How do you convince that kid or a kid that's not even going to get on the field this year to stay and wait it out? Like, the only way is in Austin Keyes' case. So he's a young player and the guy in front of him has gone now. That's right. it. It's you, you, will have to, you will have to wait for a year. That's it. And then you'll play. And if then you'll play doesn't happen, He's gone. I mean, Mississippi State's dealing with this right now. And, and of course, every transfer, there, there's reasons sometimes, and we're going to find very soon, NIL was the, the promise didn't go through. So, therefore, the player is going where they'll actually get money. Sometimes a position coach changes. Sometimes it wasn't what they thought it was going to. But, but Mississippi State signed a, a guy, a receiver, last name Knox, blue chip wide receiver recruit. Didn't play much this past season because Makai Polk caught over a thousand yards. Malik Heath, they had some veterans at wide receiver. Polk's gone, Heath's gone. He was going to have a much bigger role on this team, but he left. Hasn't, as far as I know, hasn't picked a destination yet either, but he's gone. He didn't give Mississippi State two years in the offense that throws the football more than anybody in the country. He didn't give that two years before he decided not playing enough. I'm gone. See ya. That's crazy to me. I know. And, like, the counter-argument to what I'm talking about, like, to, to argue against my own point is, what I, this is, like, there's common things we talk about as, like, media and consumers or whatever. And, like, a generality that people bring up all the time that I actually think is the legitimate one is the amount of kids that don't find a home when they go in the portal. There are a ton of kids that go in the portal and don't actually get picked up by anyone. So, like, just the – threat of that happening keep kids there does that keep an Austin Keys around and again I'm just using his name as an example I know nothing it should. about Austin Keys he's going to play a role next year like I'm not talking play about a lot, this situation yeah. right yeah he's going to play a ton but like does that keep someone like that around longer like I guess like are your depth pieces kids that in the beginning are just glad to be in an SEC program I'm just fascinated by all of it because you had a kid what's that what's the uh Alabama uh, the linebacker that just went to Arkansas 
like he kind of played for them. Drew Sanders or whatever his name is, like yeah. he, he kind of played for them. That's a valuable depth piece, right? Like that kid was very valuable for them defensively, you know, should they have lost anyone. I think they did lose a linebacker. I can't remember his name. And he stepped in and played a bigger role. Like how you keep that kid around, maybe kind of the ticket to, you know, a 10 or 11 win season versus an eight one. And I don't know how you do that in this portal age. Maybe you just beat some fear porn into them in terms of like, look at how many kids aren't finding homes. You might be screwed. But then that also gets into the topic of like the back channel recruiting and, you know, schools contacting kids while they're still on other rosters, which unless you're a total dope, that happens all the time. Spoiler alert. So I'm just it's the kids that leave programs like Southern Miss that really get screwed in all this. That that's that's the reality of it. It's those kids. And if you want to talk about that, who's getting screwed all this? The Division One prospect that's probably actually a D1 player but needs a couple years is totally screwed in all of this. And you, you're starting to hear high school coaches. I, I follow, The guy who used to be the head coach at Pearl, who's now at a high school in uh, Missouri, I talked to him for a couple of different stories when I was an intern at the Clarion Ledger. Like, we keep up with each other, I would say, at minimum. He has been retweeting a lot of stuff from high school coaches talking about what, like, a shitty effect the portal has on it. I think Siski was talking about this the other day. Like these high school kids that are probably D1 players with some work are just totally getting looked over. Like their ceiling, I guess, is a Southern Miss or a Sunbelt or Conference USA or whatever, because it's exactly what Kiffin's doing. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's just kind of the, the way things work. Those project kids are done skis now. They're not getting a D1. They're not getting a power five opportunity because no one wants to waste the time developing a kid when you can get one in the portal, which yeah. – I don't even know, like, the, the the arc of this discussion at this point. There's just so many possibilities. Yeah. It kind of blows my mind. We truly don't know how this is going to play out. And I guess to put an actual bow on that is, I'm curious to see what the optimal roster construction method is. In five years, if Saban's still around or Kirby's still around, maybe they're bad examples because they're blue bloods, but the program that maybe is not a blue blood that is contending every year, what are they doing roster construction-wise and why? I'm curious to see where that settles. Yeah, for sure. Unintended consequences, though, uh, bound. And on the high school front, you know, if the NCAA truly cared, uh, I, I think they would allow FCS schools, for example, to uh, up their scholarship limit. So I don't know if you knew this. FCS schools can only give 63 scholarships. That, that's what they have. Uh, yeah, so it's not 85, it's 63. And what's funny is it's 63 and their national champion plays 15 games. And so you're saying that, oh, we can't expand the playoff because – Player safety is too many games. Well, there's 23 fewer players on North Dakota State, and yet you just made them play 15 games. Increase their scholarship limit. You, you've created an unintended consequence here where a lot of kids that would have gotten opportunities are not now. So give them more opportunities. No, it's not Ole Miss. It's not Mississippi State. Hell, it's not Southern Miss. But Furman can offer seven more guys. Make it 70 scholarships instead of 63. Seven more guys across the entire FCS creates a lot of opportunity one for some of these portal guys to find homes it's not the same it's not d1 anymore but you got a place to go get an education and play ball and some of these high school kids that get screwed have more places to go that's what the ncaa if they had a meeting and we're like okay we're gonna allow free transfers we're gonna open up this portal we've seen it for a little while seen it for a year oh shit there's hundreds of kids that had nowhere to go had nowhere to go didn't play football this season Here's what you do. You increase the scholarship limits. Seven scholarships for a place like Furman doesn't change anything at all. So do that 
and help these kids out, but that requires a little bit of forward thinking and competence. So, oh, and you know, you're exactly right because you know what their meetings are instead. Oh, damn, that kid from Super Talk who's covering the NCAA basketball regional, he walked out on the floor with the Dr. Pepper in a Dr. Pepper brand, but they don't actually give us money. So, let's go make that kid pour that in the NCAA cup instead. Like, that's the, <laughs> that's the fish they're frying, which makes me. Not that the sport is hopeless or like college football is hopeless, but these big problems that we've just spent an hour discussing, that's what gives me pessimism that this is actually going to change because the, there's no real leadership. College football lacks real leadership. They don't have a commissioner. They're relying on the NCAA. That's really just this. The NCAA is basically just the schools. The leader of the NCAA is a total dope. Like this is a sport that needs a real leader that's innovative and figures stuff out a la like a David Stern or something like that. And that's just not happening. And so I'm curious, like, where does this go? Like, how far does this like devolve into? And what does college football look like in 10 years? And I'm not doing the whole football's dead thing. Like, it's still going to be popular. But like, what does it look like? Because is there a world where, see, we mentioned the kids, so it, it does work to the advantage of these group of high schools to some degree. Have you seen how many Ole Miss defects that Southern Miss has gotten? You tell me that Quentin Bivens, who played a really nice game against Louisville in the opener, I'm not arguing that Ole Miss should have kept him by any means. Tell me that guy can't play in Conference USA, Tyler yeah. Knight. Like, the guy, you know, puts people's dicks in the dirt. Like, you can't build a team of Tyler Knights, as Weldon loves to say, but he's a good player. And, like, that guy can't play at Southern, so it benefits them from that perspective. But the disadvantage is kind of what you're seeing in basketball. The basketball, the mid-majors or the low-major – has a kid average 25 a game, as soon as he becomes a grad transfer, he spends his last year at a Duke or he spends his last year at an Auburn or something like that. That's the disadvantage of that. And, like, do, do group of five schools become a JUCO in some senses and become, like, what's the kid's name from Central Michigan, Troy Brown? That kid made a bajillion tackles and played really well for three years or whatever it was at Central Michigan and then comes to Ole Miss. Like, do these schools become feeder schools and then vice versa? It's kind of been that way. but like. What does that look like in five years? Is Ole Miss getting kids from Southern that are standouts and then sending their defects there? Like, that, that part of it is fascinating to me as well. Yeah, and this – I'm glad you mentioned that because the, the portal has created a lot of headaches. But I think a, a place like Southern Miss, for, for an Ole Miss fan that actually cares, which I, I doubt any of you do, the portal's been great to them. They, they've got players on that roster that are coming in this offseason that they never could have gotten otherwise, ever. They, they, they could not have gotten 10 SEC-caliber players. Now, there's a reason those guys are transferring to Southern Miss because they weren't playing much at those SEC schools, but they still played some. They were there. They were in the SEC program. They practiced every day against SEC players. A lot of them played in SEC games against Alabama and LSU and Auburn. They were there. Southern Miss could have never gotten guys like that uh, without this. And so it does benefit them some. It really does. Talon Knight, like you said, is going to be a menace in the Conference USA. Just a menace. I mean, that, that dude, people are going to hate playing against him. They're going to hate it because he's going to tear the place up. And they need to keep him on defense, in my opinion, but whatever. Point being, there's a lot of bad, there's a lot of confusing, but there's some good, too. I mean, Troy Brown now gets to play in the SEC. The three-time first-team All-Mac player. I think it's kind of cool that he gets to show what he can do in Tiger Stadium next year. Absolutely. I mean, Chance Campbell. I mean, I know he was not a, a, a group of five guy, but 
Does any how, how many people know who Chance Campbell is if he'd played this past year at Maryland versus Ole Miss? Well, in the uh, All Star game today, in all the practices, he's been wearing Maryland gear. So, uh-oh. oh, interesting. Yeah, A little Sunday night football controversy. The guy didn't say your school; he said his high school. That type of uh, I didn't know that. But like Mark Robinson, that guy was a running back at SEMO. Yeah, like a draftable ish prospect. I don't think Mark Robinson gets drafted. But if you told me in three years, hey, look, Mark Robinson stuck around an NFL roster for four years, I'm not totally stunned. That was a running back at SEMO. So like. The portal gives and the portal takes. Again, I'm just curious to see how this all shakes out because the one common denominator seems to be in terms of like getting screwed by the portal is the high school kid that's not a blue chip. And you've yeah. got a lot of high school kids that weren't blue chips that turned out to be really good players, and I'm curious the future of that. Maybe they just go G5, and that's kind of the way they go. And you can still make the NFL from a G5 school. That's, you know, you can still achieve anything you want to from a G5 school. It's just not ha- – it's a lack of opportunity to play major college football because of all the reshuffling. And so, I mean, between that and, like, the COVID eligibility, I would hate to be a kind of a run-of-the-mill three-star kid going through recruitment right now. Like, that would kind of suck. But I don't know. I'm curious to see where all it lands. Roster construction – is going to be a key over the next five years. And I guess to kind of like wrap up that part of the conversation, Ole Miss is lucky at this juncture that they have someone that kind of is forward thinking like Kiffin. I'm not a big dump on Matt Luke guy, but do you think Matt Luke is going to be as innovative as Kiffin has in terms of how he builds his roster? Look around the SEC. I mean, Brian Harson's a disaster at Auburn. Like we'll just pivot there. Where the hell do you think that goes? But to – wrap up what I was talking about. Ole Miss is fortunate they have a guy that's forward-thinking in that sense versus, I hate to do the state thing, but Leach is kind of set in his ways, and I think that is going to go by the wayside because it's adapt or die, and Ole Miss fortunately has someone that's going to adapt. Uh, For sure, and and we've had, you know, people that listen to the radio show texting in uh, replies to me on Twitter, whatever, people that are really concerned, uh, you know, I've even had somebody say, well, Alabama doesn't do it this way. Why is Kiffin doing it this way? And I said, because Alabama doesn't do it this way. When has Ole Miss ever been able to do it the way Alabama does and beat them consistently and been at their level? Never. And and you won't be able to. You just don't have what they have. You have got to – how many years have we been saying you've got to do it differently? You're not going to beat Alabama at Alabama's game. You have to do it differently. Hugh Freeze did it with offense and style. Yeah, he recruited well, but not that well. He didn't recruit better than Alabama. He got some good players, but his roster shouldn't have beaten Alabama. Why did they? Because of style. It it, it was style that did it. And now Lane Kiffin's a a high-level offensive mind and creative and all that offensively, but this is another angle of that. He's doing it differently. And and that's the only way you can be successful at Ole Miss is if you do it differently. And sometimes it may not work. Sometimes you swing and miss. Like when you run plumbly left, plumbly right, roll out right, throw an incomplete pass in the dirt and punt the football away. You know, at least they tried something. It was a failure, but they tried. You can't do Georgia and beat Georgia. You can't do LSU and beat LSU. You got to be different. So Lane Kiffin has recognized that, and he's trying to be different. We'll see if it works. 
I think it'll work to some degree. Before we get out of here, kind of just bouncing around to a couple of different topics, whether it's around the SEC, what is going on at Auburn? Is Brian Harson's greatest blessing that the basketball team is 2021? This seems like a disaster. Did you see the fact that the, the offensive court or OC, Austin Davis, did that kid play at Southern Miss? Is that the same guy? He did. Yep. He's just 43 days on the job, but he's out. And then there was some report coming out later today that he was going to be fired. He wasn't up for the job. Who knows if that's them deflecting and saying it's an Austin. Awesome well, that was Greg McElroy said that yeah, uh, if, he, again, if he had not stepped down, he, he was going to be fired. Well, you know, that may sound like when you say that out loud, you think, oh, wow, that speaks bad on Austin Davis. Does it, though? Because who hired him? Yeah. How could Brian Harson not know that he wasn't equipped for the job when he hired him? Exactly. And, like, I would say that that's – I would it coming from if it doesn't come from an actual reporter who's plugged into a beat, I'm always hesitant to believe it as gospel. I'm not saying Greg McElroy doesn't know and wasn't told that, but like Greg McElroy is not necessarily I'm about to sound like the corniest Medill grad of all time, but like not necessarily trained as like a reporter to kind of like take not take one morsel of information and immediately run with it, try to get some context. But either way, it doesn't matter. Like, what is going on there? Like you had the whole like, is he gonna get fired for being an anti vaxxer? I mean I just feel like if you're if you're a football coach that's paid that amount of amount of money, if there's some back channel rumors that he might be a Scientologist, you should probably stay away from that guy. Maybe just not employ him. And my God, it's turned out to be a disaster. Think about where Auburn's gone since they beat Ole Miss on Halloween night. It's been a teetotal disaster. And there's no way with the way Alabama's functioning this lasts another year. It seems like they're delaying the inevitable. I'm not necessarily for the quick hook hook and firing coaches that quickly. If I was Alan Green and I was in charge of Auburn, and I know that was his guy and he stuck by him through the Kevin Steele coup, I would have just been like, eh, let's move on with this. This is clearly not going. In what world does this work out? In what world does Brian Harson beat Alabama and contend for the West? It's not, it's not going to happen <laughs> this year. I mean, I mean, when media days come around, they will be my pick to finish last in the West. I mean, they, they've lost talent and they haven't replaced talent with talent. I think they've downgraded pretty significantly at quarterback. I mean, of all positions, they've downgraded from Bo Nix at quarterback. Think about that. Uh, they're in bad shape. But this is what happens when, when you have a toxic, uh, what is it, faction culture, booster faction culture that is pulling influence in so many different ways, and seven, eight, nine coaches tell you no, and you end up hiring the guy you never wanted to hire in the first place, regardless of what the spin is. Auburn never – they never wanted to hire Brian Harson. This wasn't their first option. This wasn't their fifth option. But because of all the, the, the shit show that the search was, they had to settle for somebody they didn't really want. And this is what you get as a result. And it became like a defiant thing. And I can't talk out of both sides of my mouth. When they hired him, I was like, actually, this is interesting. Like, this could be good. Like, good on Alan Green for kind of fighting off the booster coup. This guy's a wet uh, – you know, a West Coast-ish guy being in Boise, Idaho. But, like, I thought it was an interesting hire. I think I would have rated it as a B plus, But from the start of it, you know, COVID, you know, COVID, I think, has played a role in this anyway because he had the weird Vax comments, and that's not my favorite content in the world. But, like, it certainly played a role in all this. Like, it, it's, it seems like a disaster. They could do a lot better than Brian Harson is basically what I've settled on. They could do a ton better. I mean, tell me this. Uh, you know, it's hindsight's always twenty twenty. But uh, would Bill Clark be in this situation right now? 
I think Bill Clark would have gone like eight and four or nine and three or something with that total, the totality of the roster that they had. And recruited the state well, and things would have been in nice, good, clean structure, and they would have been respectable. And you would have, I don't know. I mean, everybody turns their nose up at hiring the UAB coach because God forbid you hire a successful lower level coach. I mean, that's the trend that we're getting in college football now, right? Everybody's just desperate to make the flashy hire. Like even Lane Kiffin. Because of his name, it was a flashy hire. But where did he come from? FAU. Florida. Louis Napier, I think, is going to clean up at Florida. And yeah. yeah. And credit to Scott Strickland for not worrying about flash. Go get a good football coach. The fact that we've gone multiple cycles now uh, where Dave Clawson hasn't been even inquired about by some of these better jobs than the one he's got is mind-blowing. But Dave Clawson doesn't flash. He's not, he's not splashy. You know, he doesn't win a press conference because he's kind of boring. But he runs a great program with limited resources, and his teams are always good, and he wins a bunch of games, and that's not good enough for a place like Auburn. You got to splash, and then when the splashes say, no, you panic, and you hire a guy like Brian Arson. You know what the absolute test case in this and is going to be proof, and I'm actually rooting for this, is Billy Napier being – miles better than Brian Kelly because LSU let that guy go from his backyard. Didn't really give them the time of day. It's an athletic director that talk about flash hires to his credit. Look, man, what's it? Scott Woodward. He got Kim Mulkey from Baylor. Like he hired away. um, What's his uh, Chris Peterson, Boise state from Washington. Like the flash thing that he does works, but it's not everything. And I think it speaks to a flawed process at the end of the day. Why not just hire a guy that wins a ton of games? Because I think Billy Napier had gotten to a different level in terms of how he was viewed as a group of five coach because ULL was ranked and played a game at Texas that people thought they could win. And they, they acquitted themselves okay, I would call it. So they were almost at a different level. But the guy that's cleaning up and recruiting in Louisiana against LSU, not winning battles against LSU, but you get my point. He's getting real talent there to a school that's not LSU in Louisiana. He's not good enough for you. you got to go pluck the Notre Dame guy. To me, that's going to be – like, if that doesn't work out, hopefully if ADs are smart, they'll look around and be like, why don't we just hire the guy that wins a ton? Like, why, why does it have to be the win the press conference? It's a flash, a splash. Keith Carter's credit, he kind of got the best of both worlds. It was a group of five coach, but that's the most well-known group of five coach of all time. So, like, I'm curious to see where that kind of turns out eventually because, I mean, again – why not hire Bill Clark over Brian Harson? Why not hire and, Billy You know, Nathan maybe they tried and Bill said no. I don't know. But it, it just it seems like you have – I mean, think about what Bill Clark's done versus what Brian – I mean, Brian Harson had good years at Boise State. Didn't elevate that program a day. In fact, they kind of slowly – he was still very good there, but they kind of maintained it and fell off a little while he was there. He didn't build anything. It was built for him. It was already there. What was ULL before Billy Napier got there? What was UAB? Oh, they were shutting down the program when Bill Clark was there, powered through that. I know it's a Power 5 job, but I reference Dave Clawson at work all the time. Why does nobody call that guy? He has Wake Forest, the smallest Power 5 school in terms of student body, winning football games. They have a very nice high school stadium. That's what, that's what their facilities are. It's just two sides. It's all it is. Just two sides. No upper decks, nothing. Just very small. They, they rarely fill it up because their fan base is tiny because it's a tiny school. They have no money. They're like fifth fiddle in their state. And look at what they do. They just win. That's all, all they do is win. You can't tell me you can't take that guy and put him in Auburn 
and win. Oh, well, he's not in the SEC. He still has the least amount of resources of basically everybody in his conference. So it's still football. There's a high school 12 miles northeast of me called Allen. A man named Chad Morris coaches there. You might have heard of him. They had like an 88-game win streak, home winning streak in their home stadium that uh, Wake Forest, I think, would absolutely trade. If you said Allen High School for Wake Forest's stadium straight up, like who says no? I don't think it's Wake Forest that's saying no, um, which, by the way, completely irrelevant, but I love bringing this up when I can. Uh, in his first home game as Allen's head coach, uh, he lost. He ruined that streak, and I wish I was covering that game that night because I was wondering if he might blame that on uh, Burt as well. But I don't know. That uh, mystery's still out on that one. But you're exactly right. Like, it's, it's crazy, like, the way we think about this now because we're kind of in the golden age of coaches, aren't we? Look at who's all the SEC programs right now. How would you rank the head coaches? Isn't Auburn seventh? Oh, in the West? Um, ooh. How would you rank the West? I, I would do Saban, Kiffin. Um, no, Brian Kelly's there now. He's been really good at Notre Dame. But if you I told me I'm to pick – Kelly, I've, I'll give him the – He was really good at Notre Dame. I'll go Jimbo and then Kelly, and it's close. But, but I would take Kiffin over both of them. And, and maybe that's a homer pick. I don't know. But if you told me, hey, you've got LSU's resources. you got everything LSU's got. You get Jimbo, Brian Kelly, or Kiffin. I'm taking Lane Kiffin. I think I would take Lane Kiffin, too. I would have to think about it, though, because, you know, Brian Kelly is unlikable as he is. Damn good football coach for what he is, like at Notre Dame. Like, Consistent winner. And then it's Leach, who I would say is closer to that conversation than the other two. And then it's what? Harson and who am I forgetting? Sam Pittman. Oh, shit. Who's, who, but he's, he's done a very nice job at Arkansas. He has. He's done a very nice job. Very good job. But isn't that all it is? Yes. But that after Saban, in the Pittman, Leach, Kiffin, Jimbo, and Kelly, isn't it those five, a gigantic pile of turds, and then Harson? Like, who is, who is dying to have Arson as their, Harson as their head coach, which Nobody. is wild to me. What would you, how would you do it in the East? Kirby, just because of recruiting and, and the ability to get boosters to buy in, quite literally, get boosters to buy in. I think it's um, actually a lot easier in the East. It's Kirby, Heupel, just because he's been there and done it a year. Yeah. Excuse me, Kirby, Napier, and then Heupel. I, I think he, just what Napier's done so far. And then it's tough. I think you got to give Stoops the nod and then Shane Beamer. That's not even a knock on Beamer. And then it's fill in the other two. What is it? I mean, Eli Drinkwitz and Clark Lee feels pretty Clark self-explanatory Lee. there. I don't even think Drinkwitz is terrible. I think Mizzou just is what it is. And then I, I don't even know how you would evaluate Clark Lee. They told him he has okay. nine years to fix this. Like, Did they really? A problem. Yeah, I had a Vanderbilt. The Vandy Rivals guy, Chris. Uh, I think his name's Chris Lee. Really nice guy. Like, he was like, they basically told him, like, hey, man, you got the better part of a decade. Like, just get this fixed. Like, Good. do whatever. Good for them, though. They, I mean, they – uh, who was it there that said uh, – well, it's, it's the guy that they forced out, right? The, the former AD that they forced out that said, uh, no, I'm not going to fire Derek Mason because all I'm going to do is hire another coach, and in three years he's not going to win enough, and I'm going to fire him too. And so we're just going to keep going through this cycle while not fixing the reason why nobody can win here. Yep. And they hired an AD who's kind of more compliant with the administration – in terms of de-emphasizing athletics. I mean, they just – did you see what they had in the last month? I can't believe this wasn't a bigger story. 
they allowed other people except the students to go to games because of COVID. Yeah. So they were allowed to fill up their arena. Just the students couldn't go. Like what, what kind of drugs are the people running that place on? But, but they had a, they had a camera set up where the student section was supposed to be. So you could watch it virtually. That is on a worse feed than your broadcast. So well, Tennessee fans are basically just buying up those tickets to go you know, win by 20 in there. Um, Wild stuff. All right, last thing before I let you get out of here, we'll hit both Mississippi schools real quick. Jackson Dart, um, I guess this is what we in the biz call a tease. I talked to his trainer over tonight working on a story that I'll probably publish next week, hopefully. it's. I think it's an incredible land for Ole Miss because if he didn't come, I don't know which way they were going. They might have could have gotten a post-spring kid and it worked out, but they were about to enter unprecedented circumstances when it came to who's in the quarterback room for spring because it literally would have just been him and Dent or excuse me, Altmeyer in debt. I think it works out. I think it's a decent fit. I think they got a really good kid that would have stayed at USC had anyone but Lincoln Riley been hired. I'm actually uh, – I wrote about the other day. I was like, look, I don't know if this is sustainable. I don't think it was the most organized the entire time, but you got to give Kiffin a pat on the back and props for actually pulling this off. And I think, you know, darts the exclamation point on that. I think he's going to be really good. I think it's as simple as – a quarterback as talented as Jackson Dart raises the overall ceiling of your football program. I think it's really that simple. Uh, your expectations were maybe not expectations because you got to see it first. Maybe he doesn't acclimate or whatever. But the ceiling for Ole Miss in 2022 is exponentially higher now with a guy as talented as Jackson Dart playing quarterback for you. I mean, especially when you look at the schedule and how easy the first half is he'll really get to acclimate to the offense and stuff uh, with ease. I mean, their most difficult game is Kentucky at home. Uh, their most difficult road game is Georgia Tech. They go to Vanderbilt as well. And then they get Auburn at home in week seven. I mean, so they can really ease into and win a bunch of games early, and he elevates the ceiling. But it's a, it's a huge get. Uh, I mean, this is a guy that has as high of a ceiling as Matt Corral. In terms of raw ability, I'm not saying he's going to be Matt Corral, of course not, but raw ability, that's the ceiling that Jackson Dart has. That's what he can be. He showed you flashes of that starting for a team with an interim head coach last year as a true freshman. With the torn meniscus, which I didn't even know about. Yeah. Apparently he tore his meniscus in that Washington State game, had like a minor procedure to kind of get it rectified, came back four or five weeks later and that was it like I I went into it I kind of look like an idiot in the interview talking about like how he's not quite as mobile as Corral and the guy was like no that's not true at all the kid's out there on one knee he's like his best quality is kind of his mobility so I don't know I'm fascinated with it and I think Ole Miss benefits from the fact that this is not a retread that didn't work out somewhere else this is a kid that just got kind of swallowed up by the business of the transfer portal in college football anyone else other than Lincoln Riley and Caleb William tandem He's still at USC, and he's probably the, the starting quarterback as a true sophomore at 19 years old. I think you got to feel pretty good about that if you're at Ole Miss. I'm curious. You're more plugged into state than I am. They have a lot of returning. They could be really good next year. Is this Does this turn into a Bo Wallace situation where they go as Will Rogers goes? Is, like, is that a fair way to encapsulate it? I like Will Rogers. I think he's – the way he's kind of fit into that system and kind of had the, I mean, he has ridiculous kind of timing with his receivers. Like you can tell he's really plugged into that system, but overall talent, is there a ceiling there? And is that their ceiling next year? Like, what do they look like? Uh, tell me how they protect. Fair. 
Tell me how they protect. I mean, they got a, a portal offensive tackle from Middle Tennessee whose name is escaping me at the moment. Um, and, and regardless, he needs to come in and he needs to, he needs to start and play tackle right away. I mean, they, they need that guy to perform. And for whatever it's worth, on 24-7, uh, he is a three-star transfer for whatever that's worth to you to play offensive line. But they're replacing both of their tackles. And now Malik Heath is gone. So – when you hear state people say, oh, well, we return basically everything, everybody comes back, that is, that, that's simply not true. It's just not. I don't, I don't know where that narrative is coming from because you lose 1,500 yards worth of catches last year in both of your offensive tackles. And the, uh, 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 Teddy Knox, the guy I referenced earlier, a wide receiver that was supposed to step in, a four-star kid, and have a bigger role, he's gone as well. So you lose three receivers from last year's team two of which with a ton of experience and both offensive tackles. So if they can't protect Will Rogers, it's going to look like it did in the Liberty Bowl. Uh, th their ceiling is high enough, though. Um, they trade on the schedule Vanderbilt for Georgia. That sucks. They trade um, NC State with Arizona, which they beat NC State, and Arizona should be an easier game. But I still am expecting them to go into the Egg Bowl with seven wins, six, seven wins or so. And that's kind of what they're going to be until proven otherwise. Because what I saw in the Liberty Bowl without those two offensive tackles that are gone is ugly. And hopefully for them, the Middle Tennessee transfer can step in and fill one spot. But it, it's, it was brutal to watch them try to protect. And Rodgers is not mobile. He's not great in the pocket. If they can't protect him, it's a long year where they'll beat Arizona and they'll beat Memphis and they'll, they'll you know, sneak up and beat, you know, maybe they'll get a win over Arkansas at home or something like that. But I kind of – I feel like the hype going into this season is not warranted at least from state people. And if they're expecting nine, 10 wins, like I've heard from some, they're going to be disappointed until proven otherwise. Because, well, there's seven former four stars on roster now. How many of them have a lot of catches for you? You know, who are they? The thing that surprised me the most in the Egg Bowl was Rodgers, not necessarily his immobility, but the kid doesn't necessarily look like he wants to run which kind of is opposite of, like, coach's kid seems like a tough dude, but, like, it didn't seem like he wanted to run. Like, a couple of the slides he had in the egg ball, I was like, there's no one around this guy. He could have gotten five, six more yards. He doesn't look comfortable running the football. And the point that you made about them losing the tackles, that does seem like a pretty significant issue in that sense. But isn't that what Leach is when we talked about the hires? Like, when, when we were on radio at the time when they hired him, like, I was fully admitting, like, Kiffin could be a disaster, but he also could be really good. I feel like you knew exactly what Leach is going to be, somewhere between five to eight wins every year, and maybe that's fine there. But given that Mullen took them to the heights and it seems like they're still trying to kind of find the next Mullen in that sense, eventually if he doesn't hit eight and he starts hitting six and seven more often, that's going to get old. And particularly if you continue to lose to Ole Miss, because last time I checked, that game's an Oxford this year. I don't know who's going to win, but you know, giving Ole Miss the benefit of the doubt from being the home team, if you go seven and five with, you know, this narrative of everyone going back and you don't beat Ole Miss, that's a tough pill to swallow. And I'm not sure Leach is necessarily fully prepared for that. 
I have a feeling he doesn't survive seven and five with the loss to Ole Miss. I don't think they'll accept that, but that's who he is. It's who he's always been. I mean, that's for, for some reason, um, people are surprised with what they've gotten. Some, some people are surprised with what they've gotten. Now, again, they, there's an expectation for this team to be a nine win team access bowl kind of team. And, you know, maybe it will be, maybe I'm just such a hater that, that I don't see it because I'm blind by red and blue glasses, but based on what I see, they're not an accessible team. Not, not close. Could they be a guess, but you're going to get another typical Mike, Mike Leach season. Last year was just so perfect. Mike Leach. They win a game. They're not supposed to in college station. They should not have won that football game in college station, but they did. They get smoked and are non-competitive against Alabama. They get smoked and are non-competitive against the second-best team they played, Ole Miss. They lose a goofy one to Memphis. They beat NC State, a team that was objectively good that they shouldn't have beat. They lose to a bad LSU team. They're non-competitive against Texas Tech. This is Mike Leach. They'll win some games. They'll put up a bunch of yards. They'll lose some games. And you will be fine. You will be competitive. You will be good. And that's all you will be. And when he was hired, you remember hearing from those people. Oh, that's what, that's what we need right now. We just need stability. We, we just need somebody that will, will win and bring stability back to the program. And then they're going to go to three straight bowl games under him. And that won't be good enough because they're losing to Ole Miss. It's Nail crazy. What they were down 28 something to Auburn, they come back and storm back. And one of the best half of performances that's the thing about Leach's offense when you can't stop it, like it's completely unstoppable, like it kind of comes on you like an avalanche. That second half at Auburn was remarkable to watch, it really was. But you just outlined the case of like the volatility, and I just don't think that plays in the SEC. And another thing in there, you may have mentioned it, they should have lost to Watt. I hate using that phrase should have, would have versus could have. They were luckier than hell to not lose to Louisiana Tech, which that puts an entirely different kind of tone on the season. I'm fascinated by it. If they went 9-3 and three next year and were an access bowl team, it wouldn't stun me. It's a quarterback in his third year in the system. Again, the offense looks really good at times. The defense should be good enough. But to your point, he's not mobile. You know, if they don't protect well, it could be 6-6, six and 7-5. Six, and five. And I'm just curious what that looks like if you lose to Ole Miss again because – you know, if there's one thing that fan base does not tolerate, they don't love – like, they, you have to beat Ole Miss, Man, which is – You can't lose to Ole Miss. And, like, it, I saw a couple people pointing out, they're like, well, the last guy beat Ole Miss twice and they fired him. I was like, that's not a great example. Joe no. Moorhead beating Ole Miss twice during the Matt Luke years and still getting fired is not a good example with everything else going on. You had a linebacker, puncher, quarterback. Like, isn't that what it was? Did they, he break Schrader? Who did he break? Willie Gay broke Garrett Schrader's face in bull prep, and they also had an NCAA scandal. Now, it was <laughs> academic-related, but still. Yeah. That's They're on probation right now because of it. And Ole Miss could not be good next year. Like, I'm, I'm not painting Very this. possible. Exactly. Ole Miss could be 6-6 six and six next year. With what they did in the portal, I think they're a better chance at kind of being in that 8-4 and four conversation because – that's the thing I keep writing about it. Ole Miss was an eight and four roster this past year. They just won every close game they're in, and that's not going to happen. Exactly. So, like, they could still be, they could be eight and four and not necessarily take a step back as a program. It's just, it's fascinating, which it's got to be good for you guys on radio because, my God, when I was around, it was bad Moorhead and irrelevant Matt Luke. And that made for some tough conversation during football season. 
now it for better or for worse, it's fascinating stuff year round. Yeah. And I'm telling you, man, you're, you're going to see a lot of it this off season. This team is being hyped hard and, and they, they better match it or, or else it, I'd be willing to bet because of how the two Ole Miss games have gone, that it would be better for Mike Leach to go five and seven and beat Ole Miss than seven and five and lose to Ole Miss. One of those would be received better, and it's not going to the bowl game. And there's a lot of Ole Miss fans listening to that probably smirking. Ole Miss would be in that situation. They hired their previous coach based on an Egg Bowl win. Now, it's to a lesser degree, I'll give you that, but it kind of works both ways. Fascinating stuff, dude. We'll do a post-spring check-in. I enjoyed catching up, as always. Let them know. Find the YouTube show, Super Talk Mississippi 3 to 6 every day, obviously. Sports Talk Mississippi, I should say. Excuse me. YouTube show in the mornings. What else you got rolling on? Um, that's really it. Fire <laughs> it's a lot, but that's really it. Um, so, yeah, find me on YouTube. Just my name is all you, all you need to search. I get in the uh, habit of doing this every time I have a guest. I have this guy that flies Navy fighter pilot, like jets that I knew in college. And he was like, I don't have anything to plug. What do you want me to say? And I was like, we'll just end it. That's it. (laughs) She got something to plug. Michael Borky, we will catch you again next time. All right. That was Michael Borky. Appreciate his time as always. Always love catching up, talking sports with my man Borky. Um, You know, trying to check with him like once a month or so. Uh, And coincidentally, he always seems to come on when just chaos has erupted. And uh, that what we thought was the Jimbo Lane feud. I wish we had uh, wish we had gotten the uh, Harson news a little bit sooner, but there will definitely be more time for that. So I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. Now to the people's holiday, Mailbag Friday. As I mentioned, you guys really showed up for the Mailbag Friday this time. I don't know what the deal is. Maybe it's just like preseason. You needed a couple episodes to kind of get back uh, for the feel of things, get your feet under you, and then really get rolling because now Mailbag Friday season is in full steam ahead. Uh, We're going to get shirts going, I think, actually this year. So don't want to make promises I can't keep, even though I just made a promise I can't keep. But uh, be on the lookout for that. we got some irons in the fire. All right, let's see. A fellow on Twitter named Bastard, love the internet, checking in here. I'm an Ole Miss fan, and I'm trying to pick an MLB team to cheer for. I hate the city of Atlanta, and therefore will not cheer the Braves. Okay, man, you do you. I like Atlanta. I think it's fine, but, you know, bastard. Registered, not big Atlanta fan. Duly noted. What is the move here for me? Any teams with Ole Miss connections? Um, I mean, Lance Lynn is a Chicago White Sox, and, like, it's having kind of a uh, not career revival, but it's just still really good late in his career. They're fun to root for. Uh I don't know. I mean, the Texas Rangers spent some money in free agency. I'm going to go out to a bunch of games this year, hopefully, and uh, they'll be competitive-ish. And that's a good time to get in on the Rangers. You won't be caught a front runner because they're not good yet, but they're kind of sort of on the rise given how much money they spend in free agency this offseason. So that might be a good one. Uh, if you like banging trash cans, the Houston Astros. Uh, the Tampa Bay Rays I always find very enjoyable to watch, but you will be one of dozens of Rays fans, which is actually kind of not true. They just have a really terrible stadium located in a really crappy location. If they ever actually get the capital to build a location in Tampa rather than kind of at the corner at the end of St. Pete, I think you'll actually see the Rays in terms of like their fan base and maybe a little bit market size increase. So Rangers a good one. Seattle's got a really nice farm system. They're getting better. That might be another one if you're big in the Pacific Northwest, but as far as Ole Miss ties, not really. I mean, talking about Southern teams, you're talking about Braves, Cardinals, 
probably some Rangers and Astros. And then the Cincinnati Reds is not really the South, but I mean, how you get their games in Oxford, I don't know where you live, but you get Valley Sports or FS1 or whatever it is now, uh, Valley now, I think, in Oxford. So there's some suggestions. Sorry, I couldn't help you more. Hayes Dubberly checking in, asking, if you're a top-rated football recruit, why would you not transfer before your junior season no matter what? Get all the NIL money as a freshman and then basically have a bidding war before your junior year and then go pro. Will we start to see this? I don't know. Like, so Borky and I have covered a lot of this in the previous conversation. I don't remember exactly what we hit, but like, I don't know if you'll, that you'll see that become a trend because in some ways they're going to have to regulate this NIL stuff. As we talked about here earlier in the podcast, I doubt it's a salary cap per se, but like Quinn Ewers, this kid here at South Lake Carroll, skipped a senior year, went to Ohio State, by all accounts made a ton of NIL money, never saw the field, and is now back at Texas. The guy who cut the check for that kid, probably not feeling great about his return on investment. I don't know. So maybe that's a trend. I mean, it seems like a smart strategy right now, but I think we're in a select window of, of players that are, one, going to get deals that are higher than I think you'll see maybe in six, seven years, depending on where this goes. I just think there's going to be some sort of market correction eventually because, you know, rich people didn't get rich by spending their money in stupid ways. And eventually the return on investment for some of this stuff is going to get so bad, like people are going to stop doing it. And in the beginning, there's no real market value. There's no market price for any of these guys' services. I'm all for them getting as much money as they want, but how do we know Bryce Young is worth you know, $800,000 or whatever he got. Like, I'm not offended or, like, bothered in the slightest that he got that. I just – how do we know that? What was that set? Like, this all of a sudden just happened on a night this summer, and then you got Bo Nix at 12.05 when NIL goes live at midnight, whatever that day is, announcing a Milo Sweet Tea deal. And now, you know, he doesn't even uh, – like, he's not even still at Auburn. It's like, I, did, I just don't get it. Like, it, some there's going to be some sort of correction, and so – as of right now, for the next two to three years, your strategy is smart. You know, go get NIL money, transfer again, and then have a bidding war and get money and then more and then go pro. But, you know, there's also a human element to this. If you're a good player and you're in an optimal situation and you're getting on the field, is transferring for more NIL money worth it? Like, I'm trying to think of a good example of this for Ole Miss. Who played a bunch as a freshman? I'm probably missing someone like pretty obvious, but like, I don't know if you're Cedric Johnson, he wasn't a freshman last year. Just say he signed some huge NIL deal. He's got a pretty good situation at Ole Miss starter, really productive last year. Like, is it worth him just going somewhere else for the sake of NIL money? Like if your whole mindset was just to acquire as much capital as possible, then I guess this strategy is optimal. But at the end of the day, these kids want to play football and they want to win games too. And that may sound a bit old fashioned, but, you know, if a productive player has a good NIL situation, is in an optimal spot on a good team winning games, I don't think he's just going to up and leave just to go try to cash another NIL deal because there's no guarantees. If you're a good player, you're certainly going to have a spot somewhere. But, you know, some places are more ahead on NIL than others, which is something you probably just heard Borky and I talk about. So, like, I don't know. It's, it's a complicated deal, and there's so many ways to go with it. It's like your question in this strategy is not wrong by any stretch, but, like, this could look unrecognizably different in two and a half years than it does now. And it's, it's truly the Wild West right now, and, like, how that gets reined in will be fascinating. And it's a good thing they have a big, strong leader in Mark Emmert and an iron-fisted uh, 
governing body that is just really no nonsense that handles everything well, like the NCA, to rein this in. I have my full trust in them to do it. Felicia Livingston, what happens if a recruit was given a bunch of money to go to a particular school after a year, decides that he wants to leave? Does he walk away with all the money? Is the cash prorated? It's a great question. I have no idea. Like, I don't know what the Quinn Ewers thing was. You're describing his situation. Like, these aren't binding contracts. You have to report them. They have to be above board for, I think, tax purposes and other reasons. But it's not like you're signing a binding contract at least not in most cases, I don't think that's the case. So I really don't know what happens with the money. I'd honestly be fascinated to find out. I might try to do some digging with a couple of situations that I know are similar and would actually like know people that know, if that makes any sense. But I, I really don't know. Like, <laughs> I would assume, again, going back to the previous question as well, if that is the case, let's just say Quinn Ewers got every bit of the NIL money he was promised and left after a year, I can promise you that's not going to continue to happen because. I mean, eventually, again, for all these kids that were exploited for all these years, if that's what you want to call it, and not being able to make money off their name, image, and likeness, now they're just robbing folks blind, like, if that's the case. And so, I don't know. I don't think that's going to happen long-term, though. I guess I can make that prediction. Brennan Chapman, would you take, take one national championship in football if it meant never having a winning season ever again in baseball. We got this question a lot on the radio, and my take was always, yes, Ole Miss fans should absolutely want that. Football, more people care about football. It's not even really comparable. Football brings in the most money, stating the obvious here. Like, football gets the most national recognition, and football's the hardest to win. So, yes, absolutely. And maybe I'm a little biased because of um, me and Mike Bianco's just very close friendship, but – uh I think you'd take the national championship in football if it meant never having a winning season again in baseball. Because as much as Ole Miss fans are into baseball, I also think there's a much larger portion of the fan base that actually doesn't care that much about baseball and is more into football and even in some cases basketball. Like I've noticed that a little bit more kind of being around the Rebel Grove message board. Ole Miss has a huge baseball fan base, don't get me wrong. But I think the football fan base is much larger and football matters more. It makes money. Baseball doesn't. I think it's a simple answer. Now, you could convince me from an enjoyment standpoint, like if you're someone that lives in Oxford and gets season tickets and goes to all the games, like it's more fun when they're winning and you wouldn't have that environment if Mike Bianco hadn't won at the clip that he's won at. Probably not getting a ton of uh, great feedback for having some Mike Bianco praise right now, given kind of where he is in terms of approval rating amongst the fan base, but it's true. And so if you're someone that loves going to the games and stuff like that, I'm not going to say you're an idiot for your answer being different because it is fun to go to the games. I got to do it last year for the first time ever. I say ever. I mean, I had like my freshman year of college, but not working as a reporter. And it was enjoyable. It's nice sitting out there in great weather. I love the baseball games. Like I don't even really care about the game. It's nice just sitting in nice weather with, you know, a game kind of going on as background noise and enjoying a couple beers or whatever the case may be. So I get the social scene aspect of it. But if you're talking about, you know, when it come, push comes to shove, football national championship for the baseball team to eternally suck, the answer is yes, and you shouldn't think twice. Donnie R.O. checking in on Twitter as well. What does Bianco being named as national team manager do for Ole Miss baseball recruiting going forward? Baseball recruiting so weird. I can't confidently answer this, but I would say next to nothing. I don't know. Maybe he's coaching college kids and it helps him in the portal some, but I don't, I, don't, I don't put a ton of stock into it. It's a cool honor for Mike, good for him, I guess. But I don't really think it means a ton 
in terms of program stature or getting recruits and things like that. I guess you could make a case that, like, like I mentioned a second ago, he needs a portal arm and he develops a relationship with a kid from the national team that's trying to leave wherever team he's playing and he's pretty good, okay, or a bat or something like that, really just any player. I guess I could see that. But I don't think it means a ton. Uh, that national team is going to win a ton of games in the first quarter of their season. Um, as far as the medal rounds go, might fizzle out. Just a hunch. Is Greg included in this? I have some food questions, Stanley asked. No, sorry. I'll get Greg back. We'll get Grill Corner going. It's snowing outside my apartment in Dallas right now. Every restaurant is closed. Every gas station is closed. Like, If I didn't know any better, I'd need to call my mom and wish her goodbye as this white death descends upon us. So I can't get into Grill Corner until the weather gets good again, but we'll have a Grill Corner coming up uh, coming up here soon. Um, hopefully, again, warmer weather on the way. Jack Colbertson, what is your ideal group for the U.S. men's national team in Qatar? <laughs> we are just – we are strictly a Premier League soccer podcast, man. No, I have no idea. How about one that they can get through? That would seem like a cool one, an easy one. That is my answer. I don't even know who's qualified for the World Cup. Sounds like the men's national team is doing well, though, and is going to qualify, which good for them. What we beat El Salvador the other night is what I saw, what I heard from the soccer purists or football purists on the internet. So good for them. But uh, my ideal group would be one to see them to go to the knockout stage. Is that what it's called? Do I have the terminology right? Boom, dynamite answer. Keeping it moving here. The LFG shirts on Twitter asks, now that Jackson Prep has hired a former Ole Miss assistant coach, which SEC head coach retread would thrive the most in the MIS? Great question. Put a lot of thought into this. I think Hugh Freeze would be welcome at the Brickyard on Ridgewood Road, Jackson Academy, anytime. I think Will Muschamp would probably do pretty well there. He's got the Alabama bangs rolling, loves to roll around, scream at kids, do plenty of that at JA. Um... Rich Rodriguez, could he get John Rice Plumley to transfer for some NIL stuff to J.A. or Prep? That offense would work. So those are my three answers there. Caleb Sailors, be honest. Are you mad at me? What? I don't know what that means. I don't think so. Thanks for participating in Mailbag Friday. Evan O, keeping it moving here on Twitter. If all SEC West head coaches were a type of liquor – what would they be? I think we've done this before for whatever reason, but I'll run through this again. Sam Pittman, Bush Light. Mike Leach, Rum. Read into that what you want. Lane Kiffin, some upper shelf like tequila. He's a beach guy, loves the ocean. Some like Jose Cuervo or something. That's probably not nice tequila. Someone's probably laughing at me. I don't, I'm not a tequila connoisseur, so I don't know. Um, Nick Saban, rubbing alcohol. Brian Harson, oh shit, with the way things go in Four Loco, you just take a couple of sips of that and you just, just couple of disaster, drink a couple of those and you wake up and wonder what the hell happened to you the night before. Who else am I missing? Brian Kelly, that non-alcoholic Heineken, fraud. Um, did I hit all of them? Yeah, I think I hit all of them. Did I miss one? No, I got – yeah, I think I hit all of them there. If I missed one, sorry, not sorry. Let's see. Alex Harrelson. We got another soccer question. Soccer corner just spreading like wildfire. 
Will Newcastle United stay up after spending $125 million on new players in January? God, I hope so. Saudi Castle United, I am here for the content. Uh, I hope. I thought they were out of it. So if you listened to the last podcast in Soccer Corner that Weldon and I did, I thought they only relegated the bottom two teams. I'm learning new things about the beautiful game every day. They're now third to last, which is apparently still relegated, but threatening to climb out of the cellar. So, yes, I think Saudi Castle United will be safe. You spend $125 million on new players and you can't find, finish third to last against a bunch of teams that, you know, pretty astute American like me has never heard of, then you're doing it all wrong. So, yes, I think Newcastle United will stay up in the Premier League. That is my expert prediction. And uh, I would put that up against anyone, Roy Kemp included. He sucked at TV. Matthew Munn, favorite slash most hilarious A&M tradition and why is it the Aggie squeeze? I don't even know the traditions. Like, I know they do the midnight yell thing, which I've kind of like driven by before when I was in College Station late one night covering a game, I think, or was in town to cover a game. Uh, I've made this analogy a bunch, but like if I didn't know any better and I didn't know anything about A&M or SEC football, I would think they were about to pull, bring like a human on one of those life-size shish kebab things and like roast him over the flames as a part of a sacrifice. Very weird. Um, most hilarious one, they, had, they built that brand new stadium and the press box is still so flimsily built that in, when the stadium gets loud, it shakes back and forth. And they actually put a sign or a, a, a note in your chair with like all of your game day information when you get there. Like, don't worry, you're not going to die when the press box moves during the Aggie yell or whatever. Guess who doesn't read the notes from the nerd uh, SIDs? Your boy. So I thought we were going to die. I actually even climbed under my seat and I was like, shit, earthquake in South Texas, we're done. This is how I go. We're really high up here. This building is moving back and forth. And then, uh, only to look like an idiot when no one else was really reacting. So does that count as a tradition? I don't know. I'll go with the uh, I'll go with the band. Their band actually is kind of cool. With all the weird stuff they do, like the ring dunk and ring tapping and all that stuff, I'll go with the band because um, that seems like the most normal of traditions because the rest of it would rival uh, Scientology. Justin Bush, name a better cult than A&M. Jesus, A&M just catching the short end of the stick guy. Lately, better cult. I don't know. David Miscavige has a pretty good one out there with uh, what he's got rolling in Scientology. Love what he's done with that program. Uh, I mean, you've had some pretty. I don't define a better cult like uh, accomplishing the goal because you could get really dark in a hurry. But AM's up there. I'll put him on the Mount Rushmore of cults. Congrats. There's also one in Starkville, too. But, you know, whatever. Poor man's tapped. In the past two weeks, Tom Brady, Ben Roethlisberger, and Sean Payton have retired. When will you know it's time to hang up the steno pad and dictaphone? Were you trying to make me say something I wasn't supposed to say? I don't understand that, but I think you're trying to ask if I'm when it's time to retire as a part-time podcaster and writer. I don't know, man. I mean, serious answer would be when I stop uh, stop enjoying it, which I have fun with this every day. It's why I've, I kind of take it on as a second job to write about whatever I want to write about, do this podcast with you fine people three times a week. Uh, and I still love the storytelling aspect of it. That's something I'm trying to do more of in 2022, particularly to, uh, you know, with the platform that I have with Rebel Grove now is to do kind of the more in-depth feature stuff. I think that's always been my strength. It's something I've enjoyed the most. You know, I like kind of having the sports background, but a lot of the stuff that I've enjoyed the most really has little to do with sports and is more of your know, storytelling aspect of it and kind of finding good stories amongst the people that comprise sports. Uh, if you're looking for a corny answer, I really enjoy that aspect of it. Got a couple more coming in the next couple of weeks, by the way, to keep an eye on. 
But if I ever get tired of that and don't get excited about trying to track down an interview or a cool story, probably time to do something else. But I don't see that happening anytime soon because even if I wasn't getting paid, I'd probably continue to do this. Now, as far as hanging it up as a grease salesman, TBA or TBD on that one. Rob Brown checking in here. Does five being named Team USA's coach this summer give him a longer leash this postseason? What is up with these people's infatuation with the Team USA thing? Like, it's cool, but I don't think it – I don't think it changes much. It is certainly – I know I, I, it's not, I'm not laughing at your question. It definitely does not give him a longer leash as it pertains to this postseason. If he loses a home regional, no one is going to sit in the room where the decisions are being made and no one on the message board is going to go, well, he is the head coach of the Team USA, like putting on the stars and stripes. I think we got to cut him a break. I can promise you that is not going to cross anyone's mind. So I, I don't think it's going to bind the benefit of the doubt. The second part of your question, how awkward would it be to get rid of someone when they're coaching the national team? I would argue not awkward at all. Mike's a good baseball coach, but it's a result-oriented business. And if he hasn't made Omaha you know, but once in 22 years – him coaching the national team is not going to factor into that. Like this is not Herb Brooks in the 1980 hockey team against the Soviets here, buddy. Like this, this is, this is an honor. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to downplay it, but this is not going to have any sort of effect on his job status. I can guarantee that. It's just not like it, those two things are not related. I don't think Keith Carter is going to be like, you know what, Mike, you had a crap year. It was disappointing in the postseason again, but damn it. You look good rocking the red, white, and blue. We're going to keep you around for a bit. It's just not going to happen. ESB, I don't know what that means, but the, the Twitter handles are just getting wilder and wilder. What's your best guess on what lineup five will roll out with for opening day? And who do you feel would be more consistent on the mound? All right, I'll start with the lineup at first. I think it's pretty set in stone. I think you will have Elko at first, Chatagnier at second. I think you'll have Justin, or excuse me, uh, Jacob Gonzalez at shortstop. For opening day, you might get Justin Bench at third, and then you go McCants in center, Alderman in right, or Alderman in left, and um, got him. Oh, Leatherwood in right. Now, I think an ideal scenario to both make the outfield better, and I think the uh, the lineup a little stronger as well, or make the outfield better for sure, is the uh, is to get the Burford kid at third base and let Justin Bench play center field or one of the corner outfield slots, probably center field, because he played a really good center field early in the year last year. I thought that was one of the most underrated things Justin Bench did, and let McCants kind of have one of the easier outfield slots. Because you got to remember, McCants is an infielder by trade, and he was in the lineup because of his bat, and he became the best center field option they had. Although at the end of the year, once they got healthier, I could have made the argument they should have had Bench back out in center, but whatever, be that as it may. Bench is a better center fielder, so – I think that's I think you'll see bench on opening day, but when it comes down to it, I think you will have bench move to the outfield and Reagan Burford at third base if all things work out. That's my best guess. Now, as far as the lineup aspect of your question, or excuse me, the pitching staff, who will be more consistent on the mound, Diamond or one of the new transfers? It's a great question, man, because you know, Diamond had elbow issues or whatever it was in the offseason or at the end of the season, I don't know if he pitched in the fall. I don't think. I can't remember. But 
it just kind of went away. And like, that's not that like in terms of it being a story and it being talked about, and apparently he's all good to go now. And it's one of those, you know, if you don't have surgery, I'll believe it holds up when I see it type of thing. When, particularly when it comes to elbows, I'm not hoping or wishing obviously, or skeptical. I wouldn't even call it that. I just would be a little tentative to trust that if you didn't have the surgery, given what you thought the injury was. So, and even a healthy diamond last year, was kind of unrecognizable by April versus the guy that, you know, hit 93, 94, six, seven times against Texas out in Arlington here in my backyard at the beginning of the, uh, at the se- beginning of the season, the guy that played, uh, you know, tripped over whoever it was on the mound in relief against state in January. And the way he threw the baseball was not the same pitcher as the one in February. And so honestly, I'm more inclined to, I know less about the two newcomers, Gaddish and Washburn, but, if you're making me pick one or the other, I would probably pick one of the – I would pick – if I could take both newcomers as options or transfers, I think I would take them because until I see it with Diamond, I kind of know what it hasn't been, and I know how inconsistent it has been. So, you know, Ole Miss is going to need him to be consistent. He's going to be their opening day starter. I think I saw Mike announce it today at their media day. Not really surprising either way. He was always going to be the opening day starter if healthy. Whether he holds on to that position is actually, I think, very much up in the air. So. Best version of Ole Miss is with the great Derek Diamond. I don't think I'm breaking any news there. But I'll believe it when I see it type of thing. Talented kid, little bit of a head case. I say head case. I think sometimes it's between the ears with him at times as well. But then he also had the velocity dip. So it's a little bit of, little bit of a mix. But he is a talented kid, and they need him to be good. Let's see. Mr. TB Shaw checking in. If you can tell, can you tell me in agonizing detail what the midnight yell is? I've been warned to not watch a video of it on YouTube or I'll instantly turn into the 12th man. I don't really know what the midnight yell is, but you just got to see it for yourself. Pretty simply put. All right, here we go. Keeping it moving here, moving along. We got a ton of questions this week. I'm trying to rip through these, not as quick as possible, but you know, keeping it moving. We don't want a three hour podcast here. Um, I'm going to enjoy my Friday at some point. Jay Reezy 23. When Lane wins in college station next year, does Jimbo give him the blow by during the handshake portion of the post game? I mean, I don't think it'll be a, uh, one of those handshake, pull it in for a hug. Come here guy. Great to see you. Love your program. Love what you're doing. Best of luck the rest of the way thing. I think it will very much be a sup kind of the, kind of the, fuck you, but not fuck you type handshake, you know, the whole like very quick and then just turn away. Like I'm disgusted by this guy, but I'm going to shake his hand with the ritual. I don't think Jimbo will do the complete blow by, but um, I don't think it will be the most friendly handshake in the world. Result aside, like even if Ole Miss goes in there and loses, um, I don't think that's going to be the most cordial handshake in the world. You know, if Ole Miss goes in there and wins, like can Lane like walk out there with like a W2 or something, that would be kind of funny. Um, and hand it to him. So anyway, I don't think that'll be the friendliest one. Major League Cracker, between Major League Cracker and Sliced Bread, this guy's profile picture is bread. I don't understand the internet, man. What is your go-to night before football Saturday supper? Uh, honestly, man, whatever's at the bar, like, <laughs> or wherever, whatever restaurant I'm eating at that night. I don't have a. Uh, I don't really have a go-to like night before football uh, meal. I don't think I'm not i I'm not that religious about it. I, <laughs> whatever. Sometimes it's chicken on a stick when I left Oxford. 
read into that what you want, but really no uh, no go-to there. Corey Clark asks, did an undercover Cowboys fan make the decision on the Washington football team's new name? I mean, the commies, the comrades. I saw that quite funny. Very suspect. I mean, they're the one of the worst-run organizations in sports. Talking about Dan Snyder here and the Washington football team. I think they should have left it at the football team. I actually thought that sounded cool once you got used to it. I thought the shirts were cool. Like, I just think they should have left it at the football team. I don't understand the commander. Like, again, commies is too easy. If you really want to go perverted, you know, they handed out the terrible towels, commanders, rags, shorten that, as you just so eloquently did. I, I don't get it, man. I don't have any answers for you. So I don't think it was an undercover Cowboys fan, though, because that organization has been – that organization being the Washington football team has been embarrassing itself for, you know, 35 years now. I don't think they need the Cowboys' help. Keeping it moving along. Got a few more of these to fill before we get out of here. Conrad T. Caterpillar. Can we get a submission from someone on Twitter just named like Bob Smith? What in the world? I don't understand this Twitter stuff. Anyway, Auburn got uh, – this isn't a question. Wait, Auburn got bored with Malzahn, paid a Brinks truck to make him coach elsewhere. What's the chatter at AU? This Harson thing appears to be doomed – bad look uh, appears to be doomed it's a bad look for the ad pressure is always on with alabama now roster maintenance is tricky Ole miss will have a good start do they find the money for lane so a lot going on here i guess my take on the auburn situation is this if you remember when brian harson was hired and this is just a general view from what i've gathered i don't know anything that anyone else knows i don't keep up with auburn i don't really know anyone over there like around it that would be like say in inner circle of knowing things when Brian Harson got hired athletic director Alan Green basically had to fight off a coup from Kevin Steele the defensive coordinator that for all by all accounts seemed to spend half of his tenure at Auburn undermining Gus Malzahn uh, and kind of openly critiquing him to very powerful power brokers at Auburn and Alan Green had to basically fight off a coup from a faction of the booster base to not hire Kevin Steele and instead conduct a real search and hire his guy, like hire who, who he wanted, Alan Green, and that being Brian Harson. And so it almost like Harson was an okay candidate, but it almost became like a out of spite thing. Like a, no, I'm hiring my guy, like a polit, kind of a political struggle more so than a well-functioning, well-run like football coaching search because, so I think Auburn has a booster problem. Because as you just mentioned, they paid a ton of money to make Malzahn go away. Those people are impatient. They have unrealistic expectations. I think Jimbo, excuse me, Nick Saban, not Jimbo Fisher, has kind of driven them mad. And look, I don't think Jizik, Gene Chizik was a great coach, but they still fired him ten years, two years removed from a national title. And I don't think Gus Malzahn was great either. But you know, he made a national title game and won the West twice. Like, what what else are you expecting? Who else is doing that in the SEC West? So. They're very impatient. I think they have a booster problem. I don't think Harson is necessarily a saint by any means, and it doesn't sound like he's a great fit there. It's kind of an outsider and a mercenary from that standpoint. But I think the people that didn't want Brian Harson when he was fired are now doing everything they can to make the situation untenable for him to return in year two. And I think part of that had to do with maybe some off-the-field stuff. I don't really know what's true and what's not true there from the rumor standpoint. But I think some of it had to do with an underwhelming late signing period. Auburn did pretty well in recruiting in the early signing period, and that kind of took some of the heat off of Harson. 
And he didn't have a ton of work to do to close. I would just classify it as very much a little bit of work, get a couple guys, and he got no one, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think they signed anyone. And I think that just kind of, you know, revved up the engines again in terms of his dissenters and the people not in his corner. And so I think Auburn has a major booster issue. Um, you know, Ole Miss for the lack for at times is not always the greatest when it comes to booster culture, but Ole Miss doesn't have like the split boosters that are all that powerful on both sides is the way I'd put it. And Auburn has some powerful boosters that, you know, often disagree on things and I think that causes dysfunction I think Auburn is a little bit of Texas light in that way that's not the perfect analogy and I don't think those two are you know identical situations by any stretch but shit also Auburn's got a booster problem like the fact that Harson's not great and Harson is not the guy to me is not even really the point you're about to make a coaching change in February like if you want to can him just let him be a lame duck coach next year can him and go through the normal process of hiring a coach during the normal hiring cycle like doing this right now just I think speaks to the dysfunction and again doesn't sound like Harson is completely absolved of blame here by any stretch but the fact that all of this is happening on what is this February 4th yeah Friday February 4th after the late signing period that's not really relevant any as relevant anymore to me speaks to the dysfunction and the booster culture they have there but I don't know. Also, if you do this right now, who's touching this job? Someone's going to take it, of course. Every time someone makes the, well, who's going to take this job argument, of course there's someone going to take it. But what desirable candidate are you going to find in February? And what desirable good candidate is going to be you know, chomping at the bit to step into that type of situation? Unless it's Kevin Steele, I guess. Or, I mean, if he got real crazy and doing it like Urban Meyer or something, I, I, I don't know. Seems like a mess. So, do they find the money for Lane? I'm not the most educated, per se, to actually speak on this. I will speculate and say if this had happened within the normal coaching cycle, I could see it. If they wanted Lane, they could. I feel pretty confident they could have him in terms of his willingness to come there. But in mid-February, amidst all of this roster turnover for Auburn, that Lane at his own place just got done fixing and rectifying and kind of has some momentum, I think Lane would take the Auburn job. Dude, I think he take would take the Auburn job now. It's just a guess, but I would lean no, given the circumstances. Again, it's not even the fact that Auburn went six and seven or had a bunch of guys leave the roster. It's them going six and seven, them having guys continue to leave the roster, and then this coming open when the fashion is coming open in early February. I just I don't see it. Maybe I'm wrong. I could look like an idiot if this ends up happening and they fire him and they make a pursuit at Lane. Again, a lot of, lot of things have to play out there. But given the timing and the circumstances, I would probably lean no. John David Smith, how would you rank the SEC and SEC West for next year based off the recruiting in the portal? Who would you be your biggest winners and losers as far as getting better or worse? Oh, man. Okay, a lot going on there. Um. I mean, in terms of just getting better, and we're not talking on the field results next year, I think you got to go in the West, A&M won. I mean, I guess you can make an argument for Ole Miss too, but Alabama still signed a hell of a class. So I'm going to put them two. Ole Miss three, Arkansas four, LSU five, State six, Auburn seven. That seems fair. You can make an argument with what Ole Miss did in the portal. They could be two, but man, Alabama still, 
this dudes aren't going anywhere. I know they had some attrition, but man, look at look look at who they have coming in. It's the same thing every year. So as far as the East, and without knowing any better, Georgia, Florida, to Kentucky had another steady class, but then also lost a couple kids. So I'll go Kentucky three, Tennessee four, and then actually I'll go Kentucky, South Carolina, Tennessee, Missouri, Vandy. Because I think the Spencer Rattler thing, I don't know if it works out, but in terms of what South Carolina can get at quarterback, I think Shane Bieber did pretty well in recruiting and landing Spencer Rattler is uh, is is pretty significant. So that's what I'll uh, that's what I'll go with there. Super Bowl prop predictions. Talk to Skybox. Stacy Wall asked that. I am not your man there. Skybox Sports Picks. Gave you the free plays at the top, though, so those are my predictions, and I'll uh, stick with them. All right, a couple more before we get out of here. I got via email and text. Here we go. Rank the SEC football coaches you'd want to have a beer with. I think we've done this one before, too. But I'll do it again just for – we're all, all in good fun here. So I'll um, – let's see. I'm trying to think to make sure I don't screw this up off the top. Who would I most want to have a beer with in the SEC? I know this is going to sound nuts, but like Shane Beamer seems like he's kind of a fun dude. Maybe I have that completely wrong and reading completely wrong, but he seems like a pretty normal down-to-earth guy. Um, well, I think Pete Golding drinks beer, but he's not a head coach, so that can't count. That was a low blow, but I'm not sorry. Um, whew, let me make sure I'm not missing something obvious as I kind of run through this in my head. I think Mike Leach would be a hell of a lot of fun to drink with. I'm actually going to go Mike Leach one, Shane Beamer two. I don't know anything about, like, Clark Lee, so I don't know. I Stoops is not really moving the needle. Drinkowitz is kind of a dork, but I bet if you got a few drinks in him, like he's actually kind of fun. Like he like kind of tries too hard and he's very nerdy in what he does, but like he seems like a social enough guy. So I'll go Drinkowitz like four. I would rank Lane higher, but like in person, like is Lane going to be that much fun to have a beer with? Like you'd be concerned about him like, I don't know, screwing with the bartender or like upper deck in the bathroom and getting you booted. So like I don't – I guess I'll go lane five. I mean, he'd be entertaining enough for six, whatever it is. I've already lost track. Um, I guess I could go Harson seven because, of, you know, that sounds like a troubled man that is ordering something strong on the rocks or maybe just not even on the rocks, just completely neat. And I'd like to ask him what David Miscavige is like in person. So I'll go Harson. That, that ups his value a bit. Jimbo talks really fast, and he's been very angry lately. So I'll throw him at eight. I don't really know enough about Napier. He seems more like a, I either going to break this beer bottle on my head or I don't drink at all. I'm only focused on football guy and no in between. So I'll go eight there, nine, wherever it is. I've already lost track. This is the worst ranking of all time. And then, I don't know, Sam Pittman seems like a good dude. He probably should be higher. I should probably have Sam Pittman higher than Napier. So Sam Pittman and then Napier. Um, Sam Pittman strikes me as a dude that would have like a couple of uh, – you get a couple uh, like whiskey sours in him and he just starts talking really loud, but the bar kind of likes him anyway. But then after like an hour of it, you're like, all right, cool, dude. Like let's get this guy in a cab and get him out of here. Um, but Pippen wouldn't be bad. So 
I'm going to redo this because I want to make sure I have this. We're, we're men of integrity here. I'm going to make sure I do this in order. I'm even whipping out a pen and notepad. So I went leech one, beamer two. Who did I have third? I can't remember who I had third. I already forgot. Oh, Drinkowitz third because he seems like a dork but fun after a while. I'm actually going to go Pittman fourth just because he like makes weird noises and yells. And usually, like, that guy, when he drinks, only amplifies that. So, he'd be kind of funny. So, I'm going to go Pittman third. And then I'm going to rank Lane fifth, despite him being kind of an oddball. And then I'm going to go – I don't know. Kirby, like, would be, like, seems like a chill guy to have a beer with. I mean, I think that guy was a KA at Georgia. So, like, clearly, he, he's, got some ga- he's got some game in that sense. But I don't think he'd go too crazy. So, I'll go Kirby six. And then – who else am I missing as we go down this list? Harson seven, just because he seems troubled and I'd like to just listen to that and then ask him questions about the C organization. So we go Harson seven. I'll go Napier eight, just because why not? Whatever. I don't know anything about Clark Lee. So you know what? He gets the benefit of the doubt at nine and then stoops 10. Saban, to me, would ask, like, how much alcohol is in each drink and how we're getting home the entire time. So he's going down at 11. And then you got Brian Kelly. He's automatically last just because, I mean, that's the dude that's getting up there at, like, 7 o'clock trying to sing karaoke, and then he thinks people like it, so he continues to hog the karaoke mic, and it's like, hey, man, like, Platinum Records isn't here. Let's let someone else have a turn. He would take karaoke rate too seriously, so he's last. Who does that leave in between? Did I cover everyone? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Oh shoot! Hypel was an oversight. I'm actually going to rank Hypel in between Beamer and Drinkwitz. I'm going to go Hypel third because he seems like a normal dude. And then Clark Lee, like last. So I missed someone in there. Oh, Jimbo second to last. So yeah, that was a terrible ranking system. But I think I got everyone. If I forgot everyone, I'm just some asshole with a podcast, man. All right, a couple more before we get out of here. What was the other couple we had coming in via – oh, how rich would you have to be to get involved with the booster pay NIL and buying our coaches? 100 mil? Honestly, I, may, I answered this question earlier in the podcast talking to Borky, not that the uh, question asker would have known that, but that just wouldn't be my cup of tea. I'd make sure I have the greatest seats in the stadium. I would make sure I'd have a guy to, like, walk me to and from my seats, maybe slip him a tip just to look cool make sure my locker stock. But in terms of like buying kids, I just don't have that competitive edge. I go to games to enjoy myself. I don't really care if anyone's that good. That might upset some people, even though this is just a dumb hypothetical, but I'd have to be like, I think I'd have to be a billionaire. I don't think I'd have to take money that really is of zero consequence, no matter what, to even think about doing the NIL thing. It's just terrible investments. 17-year-old kids are poor investments. So that's that. Is Drummond an NFL receiver? I lean no because of the speed, but he's got sure-handedness and he's a good route runner. So if he made a roster and made a little bit of a career for himself, it wouldn't stun me. He's got a ton enough. I'm just worried about the quickness and some of the athleticism. Mail, last one. Here we go. Or last one from this uh, this particular sender. Was just watching the men's figure skating Olympics, but quickly turned it off. There you go. Support support freedom, anti-China. If you're an Olympic skater, what song are you skating to? We'll skate to one song and one song only. My Homes by the Black Eyed Peas. 
provocative. No one knows what it means, but it's provocative. It gets the people going. If you haven't seen Blades of Glory, watch that tonight. I think that is all the mailbag questions we got. want to make sure I didn't miss any. Yes, I believe that is all of them. So this has been Mailbag Friday. If you made it to the end of this marathon of a podcast, I thank you very much for allowing me to take up this much time on your weekend or whenever you're listening to this. Thanks for everyone, as always, for the feedback on the pod. Again, trying to make it more of a habit to say it over this last year, but I really appreciate it. It's been kind of crazy to me how all this has come together and grown, and I'm enjoying every second of it, and I hope you guys are too, and I've enjoyed the interactions along the way. Y'all have a wonderful weekend. Don't do anything I wouldn't do or do. We're all adults here. I can't stop you, and we'll catch you on Sunday.